on a warm summer's evening On a train bound for nowhere I met up with a gambler We were both too tired to sleep So we took turns of staring Out the window at the darkness Till boredom overtook us And he began to speak He said, son, I've made a life Out of reading people's faces And knowing what the cards were By the way they held their eyes So if you don't mind me saying I can see you're out of aces For a taste of your whiskey I'll give you some advice So I handed him my bottle And he drank down my last swallow Then he bummed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet And his face lost all expression He said, you're gonna play the game, boy You gotta learn to play it right You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away Know when to run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the deal is done Every gambler knows That the secret to surviving Is knowing what to throw away Knowing what to keep Cause every hand's a winner And every hand's a loser The best that you can hope for is to die in your sleep. And when he finished speaking, he turned back toward the window, crushed out his cigarette, faded off to sleep. And somewhere in the darkness, the gambler, he broke even. But in his final words, I found an ace that I could keep. Come on! You got to know when to hold them. Everybody! Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the deal is done, you got to know. Unfiltered. I turn on CNN, I turn on MSNBC, and I watch and I watch and I watch, and I turn it on hoping that I'm just going to see something that gives us a little hope that we're getting close to the crest. I haven't seen one single solitary indication or indicator that we're anywhere near 
like, okay, we're getting somewhere on this. Unfiltered. Watching Jadeveon Clowney play last year, I was thrilled to have him. I, I thought I thought he was a wrecking machine when he was out there. Now, he was injured, and he was in and out of the lineup late in the season, but for the most part, he was causing a lot of problems. He was doing everything that I could have asked him to do, but they weren't good defensively. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 84, we're all going to miss the great Kenny Rogers. See, this is why you're lucky to have me here, because if you would have tried to pull that little stunt with Fish or Sandmeyer, you would have <laughs> definitely been punched in the nose. So you're lucky to have me here to go along with your shenanigans. Oh. I've been singing that song all weekend, so why not just do uh, it again? Hasn't everybody been singing yeah. that since you heard the news? Yeah. Haven't we been singing that song for years and years and years? It's amazing how, like, you know every lyric. You don't realize it. And that I, I love, he has like 10 songs. I've seen him in concert. You ever seen Kenny Rogers? No, I've never seen him in concert. I saw him at the Emerald Queen. Oh, you a, did? A little sad. Yeah. You know, because he was a massive star for those that don't remember he was a pop star not just a country western star huge star so I'm happy I got to see him once well, that was courtesy of uh, Capitol Records, LLC. Okay, sounds <laughs> or, good. What did you say, for uh, entertainment? Pay- no, no for educational purposes. Education. We're trying to educate people on We love Kenny, Kenny Rogers. Rogers, and if somebody gets mad at us for playing a song on our podcast, so be it. Right. During this time, during what's going on in the world, the loss at 81 <sighs> of the great Kenny Rogers, if somebody gets mad at us for playing a song, so be it. Are there bigger fish to fry in the world right now, or no? Yeah, I think a okay. couple of bigger fish couple of bigger fish. Now, did you know he was sick? I didn't even know he was sick. No. He could have been. No. Because I didn't know doesn't mean he wasn't. He had I changed guess. over the years. His facial appearance changed over well, the years. Well, he went through a massive plastic surgery remake. Yeah, yeah. Like a, or like a makeover. Yeah. And then he's since come out and said he regretted doing that. I think he had a, a younger woman in his life who... Maybe pushed him a little bit. He looked better in like 1978 with the gray, though. I mean, he he could have just aged gracefully. You know what I'm talking about? He yeah. just always looked have old. Have you seen the video of him playing basketball with Michael Jordan? And Who has it? Dominique Wilkins. I had no oh. idea that existed. The pump fake. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Jordan goes flying by, and then he swishes yeah. one and drills one. The little around the back. Oh, yeah. Kenny Rogers. And he and by the way, he plays. The tempo with which he plays basketball is exactly the same the tempo with which he sings. Slow and methodical. That's right. <laughs> and he's been visiting those uh, Kenny Ro- uh, Kenny Rogers uh, Roasters a little bit too. <laughs> Wasn't there a famous Seinfeld episode about a Kenny Rogers yes. Roasters where he got where Kramer got like burned? Remember he was getting suntan. He got he got burned on uh, because there was one of the signs in his in, across the street in his window. Yes, yeah. He came and out. He was all. They showed uh, Kenny Rogers from behind, even though it wasn't really him. <laughs> just a white haired guy at the end of the episode. Yeah, that basketball oh. thing was amazing. I didn't know that even existed. Oh, it's classic. You think it's Jordan seventies? Like would would Zion's oh. agent let him go play in something like that now? Oh. No effing way, right? Oh, Kenny Rogers with the pump face. It's Michael Jordan. Yeah. I mean, good God, <laughs> Dominic Wilkins, Isaiah Bird. Yeah. Holy crap! Yeah. And the golfers too. I saw Payne Stewart out there. Was he? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even know. Yep. Uh, anyway, ep- episode 84, we laugh because we don't want to keep crying. Yeah. So we, we got to sing and laugh and do something to take our mind off of it. Episode 84. Episode Bobby Ingram. Oh, Bobby Ingram. Should have had that catch in the south end zone against the Rams. Oh, was that him? Did yeah, I got that right? Yeah, it was close. A little behind him. For that was, it was Hass- low. Hasselbeck. Yeah, it was kind of low. low. A little bit behind. Yeah. But they they went on to some bigger and better things. They did, that. yes. And he went to they went to the Super Bowl after that, right? Yes. Uh, episode 84. Episode Joey Galloway. God, I thought Joey Galloway was going to be a Hall of Fame rock star when he came to town. When he came to town... And he had all the things he had from Ohio State. The sp- everything about Joey Galloway looked like Hall 
of fame. And he was a good receiver and a great kick returner yes. and a great athlete, but he never really – and then he left. And that's some good years after the Seahawks. Yeah, he yeah. did, yeah. But I think he got hurt maybe. He held out, and then he got hurt after he came back, and he was never really the same. But he was a friend of the show. Do you remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We had him on. Yeah, a I lot of times. Standing... Yeah, he had a regular show on with me, a weekly show. On that's right. He... We sent CJ with him to a basketball for him to shoot baskets to see because it was some ch- challenge of how many threes he could make. Oh, okay. And he apparently made every three unless CJ was lying. She was doing the play-by-play. I still don't know whether he made every three. Like, she was call- like, there's one, there's two, and he made like 10 or 12 in a row. So she said. So she says, yeah. Yeah, he used to stand next to me in the control room before he was ready to go on, so I kind of uh, got yeah. to know him. Yeah. And he introduced me to the group Outcast. He's got a nice career going. He's also got, uh, yeah. he's, he's a college football analyst for ESPN. Anyway, uh, do you remember Todd Elstrom? Yes. 84 for the Huskies. Aaron receiver, Pierce. Yeah. Aaron, sure, on the 12-0 national championship 84, team. 84, there's some 84s, but it's going to be none of those guys. We've got, we're going to have, if we really want to take this seriously, we've got a hell of a dilemma on our hands. Okay. Because I was thinking about this before you showed up. Why do we start taking it serious now? Of all I don't days? know. We, we don't have to take it serious. <laughs> well, because we got nothing else to take serious, <laughs> right, except for the coronavirus. Uh, well, you could do episode Herman Moore. He was good. Do you know that Chris Webber wore 84 in the NBA? I didn't remember that until I just saw that preparing for the show. He no wore, idea. Yes, he wore 84 for like the Washington Bullets and for like the Golden State Warriors in the NBA. Um, Sterling Sharp wore 84. Herman Moore wore 84. But the two biggies, and I don't know how you feel about either of these two guys, Randy Moss wore 84. Oh, yeah, he did. Pretty good. He was. And Shannon Sharp wore 84. Sterling's brother. Sterling's brother. Yeah. One of the greatest tight ends of all time and one of the greatest receivers of all time. Two two surefire Hall of Famers. You got to decipher between those two guys. This shouldn't factor in, but does Shannon Sharp kind of annoy you? Yeah, very much. Okay. And the guy opposite him annoys me even more. Who's he with now? He's, with, He's the, with the Fox thing with the guy from Dallas. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Skip or... Skip Bayless. Skip Bayless, yeah. yeah. No. I will never watch... If I see that show, <laughs> okay. I will run... I will run for a table and, and, and literally climb underneath the table and hide from that show. <laughs> that's the mushrooms of your that's, TV that's watching? That's literally, that's like nails on a yeah. chalkboard. When they say nails on a chalkboard, I see that show. I will never watch. And, I, and believe me, I don't want to watch Stephen A. Smith either. Yeah. So I got a problem with all that stuff. All, all those shows, those yeah. shows, I like because I'm a Tony Kornheiser guy. I like Pardon the Interruption. I like Wilbon. But all those other, like, around the horn uh, or something yeah. where they're in the square, oh, no, no. Yeah, no good. I'm, to- I'm totally out on all those. So I'm not going to let that affect me, but he's always bothered me, Shannon Sharp. I don't know well, why. Well, maybe that's a, that's a reason to go episode Randy Moss. Did mm. Randy Moss ever... No, I always, I always like when Randy when he pulled down the pants. Did he pull the pull his pants or pretend to pull his pants down? Yeah, I think he did. And in the, in I the think end Joe zone. Buck was like outraged now, about now, it. Now I don't know if it's going to affect your decision making process on who we're naming the show after. But when he played in New England, he traded an eighty four for eighty one. He caught balls from Tom Brady wearing number eighty one. Okay, but he's known for wearing eighty four. So I don't know if that changes anything. Anything between those two guys. Anyway, it's episode 84. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, most all podcast platforms. Please subscribe and rate us and listen to us and click play on all the different episodes. Go back to episode number one if you haven't heard it. Also, become a Mitch Unfiltered patron for the extra shows each week. We'll have 84P this Thursday. Maybe we'll even do an 84U. We've been doing extra shows for the patrons. It's $5 a month. You go to MitchUnfiltered.com to become a patron and get all the extra shows. How are you holding up? How are our listeners? Is everybody holding up okay? How you doing? How the Soden's doing? Do you want to hear how I'm doing personally, really, this this month of March? Do you really want to know how it's been a how, bad how month for a lot going? of us, but I know that 
there's been a couple extra layers dumped on your shoulder, right? Yes. Yeah, so I am out of a job as of the end of April. Really? Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, you our, got this. I do have this. I'm holding on to this. We're going to discontinue on May 1 anyway. My agent's going to come in and ask for a raise <laughs> after this. So Raise? All right. <laughs> um, our dog is like, our dog is, yeah, I it's, know that. it's over. But I because of everything else we going on, through it. I don't we... have it in me to do it, but we need to. Okay, so our dog, um, and then I found a leak in our house underneath oh, no. a broken pipe. Right. So I have people coming out to look at that tomorrow and hope I don't get raked the over the coals pe- for $12,000. The fact $12, that people will come out and look at it at this point is pretty good. Right. It's funny how your priorities sort of change a little bit. Like, I don't care. We got to get this fixed. Come on out. So the Sodans are struggling. I'm a walking freaking country song right now. I'm a country western song. <laughs> you just my, sang one. My, my, you just sang one. My dog died. I lost my job. I'm I got sorry. a leak in the house. So What can I do? I'm ready for March to go away. I was wondering, I haven't even brought this up to my wife because my wife and our family still in mourning over Sadie. You knew Sadie, yes. and this is just recent. But as we get kind of confined to the household, my thoughts have been wandering. Like, we've always talked about rescuing a dog mm-hmm. after we finish our mourning period with, with Sadie. I don't know whether that's changed because my wife and I don't talk about it that much because yeah. she's still real sad about Sadie. If you were going to rescue a dog and kind of train a dog, I'm, I'm starting to think that maybe this is the, when we're all home yeah. all the time. Maybe this is the best time or is, the, or is it a terrible time to rescue a dog? I don't know why it would be terrible. I don't know when there's ever a terrible time to rescue a dog. But yeah, you're all around it. You get he gets. Used you never to have he to leave the dog by yeah. the by themselves. That's right, yeah. right? Because you're going to all be here. You can you can get to know the dog. Well, I I was just thinking to myself. I hate to bring it up because I don't know how it will be received. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry about your dog. Well, thank you. Yeah, and he's a cool dog because he came from Hurricane so Katrina. You've gone through this before, right? Yes. As a kid, you went through this. No, no I, as an adult. I went through it. In, the Seahawks played in 2014. I remember the Super Bowl was like yeah. two weeks after, so I had to put a dog down. Yeah, it's uh, it's rough. It's rough. I'm sorry. Thank you. It's been uh, a rough, rough month. I'm ready for it to well, go Well, maybe away. 84 will be some therapy for you and everybody else. Again, I like to say at the beginning of these shows, during the midst of this uncertainty and coronavirus, look, I, I don't know what I'm doing. In terms of tenor, I don't know what appropriate is. I get the feeling that no one really knows what normal and appropriate is. Yeah. Part of me thinks that we should just joke and have fun and laugh so that people can come to Mitch Unfiltered as, an esca- as a total escape. The other part of me thinks that that might be offensive to some in our listenership that might have a family member who's struggling. God forbid a family member who died. Yep. So I don't know about that. I don't know if we should be covering it from a newsworthy st- You know, I, I'm very interested in it as everybody else is. And so I'm trying to kind of fly by the seat of my pants. I don't know whether I'm doing the right thing. If if somebody out there, and I do open my email, the email comes straight to me, Mitch at MitchUnfiltered.com. Mm-hmm. If somebody out there either has a problem with what we're doing or likes what we're doing or thinks we should approach this differently, the best way I know how to deal with this is to keep producing shows. Yeah. But I'd like some direction from you or Steve or anybody else. You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of on my own until you show up and I'm kind of on my own until I send it off to Steve to put these shows together. And I'm I'm grabbing at straws. I'm just trying to guess what people will enjoy and what tenor to hit on these shows. I went to Safeway the other night and it was late, late at night to get yeah. some stuff because they're supposed to go when no one's there. And I I. Three times I wrote a tweet that said, you know, I have my crossbow with me. I'm ready to battle for toilet paper. I made some joke and I deleted it three different times. Like, uh, I don't know. Should I be sending this out? I don't like, know. I don't, I don't know, know the answer. I ended up sending it out, but I deleted it three times. So take 84, which you're going to hear on this episode. It's going to be a longish episode 
as an example. Here's your, your perfect sample set. Dr. Eric Ding of Harvard University, I mean, the smartest guy we've ever had on the show, yeah. sci- Harvard scientist who's been on a few times, I figured... Let's have him on again. Let's have him on weekly as long as he'll do it to yeah. update us on what he knows, what he thinks. He'll tell you the truth. He'll tell you what to need, you need to know. And I'm figuring the good thing about podcasts, obviously, with all of this is if I'm hitting the wrong tenor, people can just right. fast forward. If they don't want to hear from Dr. Ding, you don't have to. He's very enlightening, smart interesting and has a lot to say about the subject so we've got him on again episode 84 for kind of an updated talk with him we also have brady henderson the espn seahawks insider you know there's a lot of nfl it seems like the nfl is the only thing that's really going on the nfl news the off-season news the free agent news so people are interested in the fact that they haven't gotten jadevian Clowney back yet but no one else has signed him at least at the time of our recording the jaron reed thing the bruce urban thing all the offensive linemen so i got brady henderson to talk about the seahawks i figured that would be appropriate for 84. And then I I took a shot with two others. So one is a very uplifting, funny interview, and the other is a very somber, difficult, sobering interview. Okay. Okay? The uplifting interview is a guy named Rick Turner. Now, no one out there is probably going to know the name Rick Turner. Maybe a couple people. You know the name Rick Turner. I've known Rick for a long time, and not only that, but he was—he lives in my neighborhood. I would see him at oh, the does. store all the time. Okay. Yes. Okay. I, I've always loved Rick. He's always been a so great Rick guy. So Rick Turner is one of the very first people I ever met. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. know that. He invited me to my first party. The first party that I ever went to when I moved to Seattle was Rick Turner's bachelor party at Kachina. Kachina, his work <laughs> bachelor party. I remember that party. place, yep. Okay. Rick Turner is not known by anybody in our audience, but if you've got a sense of humor or you're looking to giggle— I got a feeling that the 40 minutes that I spend with Rick Turner on episode 84 is going to is going to scratch that itch. It's very funny. I, I mean, I, I think it's hysterical. Maybe you won't. Yeah. I don't know what people think. So so just briefly, Rick Turner, one of the first people uh, almost exactly the same age as me. He was like an intern with the Sonics. He was one of the first producers ever at KJR. I don't know if you've heard that. I didn't that even radio. know that. I don't know if you've heard that about that radio station. KJR, it's a, it's, a, it's a sports radio station in Seattle. I've only heard of 95.7, but go yeah, on. That's a different KJR. Okay, that's the only one I know. Uh, he was one of the first producers. He was an intern for the Sonics. I got to know him. We were both about 25, 26 yeah. years old. We kind of quasi-worked together. I did the Sonics TV for a year or two there. You and David Stern having a conversation. We sure did. I remember. And he was kind of involved in that, and so our lives were kind of... Yeah. We're kind of intermixed. But for, and then, but for and, those that don't remember, Barry Ackerley owned the Sonics. And, and so we were right. like a big family, we were big, even right. if you didn't work. That's everyone right. knew everyone. So Rick Turner is this kind of interesting character <laughs> cat. And what happens, I don't want to give it away, he decides to leave the Sonics and he's going to pursue, he wants to just coach basketball. Just wants to coach basketball. Yeah. And what he then goes through to try to coach basketball is what this interview is all about. Okay, great. And there's an end to this. There's a... Um, a Kicker's not the right word. There's a punchline. Okay. There's a punchline. I'm not going to give it away. There's a payoff. There's a payoff at the end right. of what Rick Turner is now. And so maybe people... So I took a shot with that interview because it's different. It's from my past and so forth. I think people will giggle. And then the other interview that I don't know how you feel about, I actually came to you and asked you your thoughts on this. About a week or so ago, a Mitch Unfiltered listener reached out to me to tell us of his mother's story. Yeah. 
contract one of the very first coronavirus test positives in the nation and in here in Seattle. And I thought I asked you whether you thought that was a good idea. He was very willing to come on and tell his mother's story. It's a tough story. It's a difficult story. I didn't want to go overboard over the line. I thought maybe it would help kind of communicate the seriousness. Not that I think more and more every day people are understanding the gravity of what we're there. They're now saying, okay, I get it. I get it. But I still hear people out there. Well, I don't know one person. That's your sample size. Right. You hear people say that. I don't know anyone who got it. I don't know one person. So you thought that this was a good idea to include this on the on the podcast. I suggested to you that if he wants to come on, I would love to hear his story. That's just personally. And honestly, when I was in Safeway sending that tweet out, I was thinking about people like this. You were. I was actually, because do they want to hear this? Maybe he does. I don't I don't know him. Maybe he wants to hear funny funniness. His name is Doug Briggs. Huge Mitch Unfiltered fan. Okay. His mother's name is Barbara Dreyfus, D-R-E-Y-F-U-S-S. She happens to also be the first cousin of Richard Dreyfus. And I said, well, why did she go? <laughs> he said, there's been a family debate about how you pronounce our <laughs> name right? for years. Yeah, first cousin, first cousin. First cousin of Richard Dreyfus. I was just watching American Graffiti. There you go. A few days ago. There you go. I love Richard Dreyfus. I love Richard Dreyfus. He's so great. Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, God. Right? He's, he's, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think so. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's amazing. So he comes on and he's going to tell us the very, you know, difficult story of his mom. Maybe it will help somebody communicate to others yeah. what we're in for here. Good. How I'm, serious I'm, this is. I'm glad he's able to tell his story. I am. I'm glad he can. And I think it was therapeutic for him. I've done the interview, and I think it was therapeutic Good. on some level. I hope it was. Uh, God bless Doug Briggs and his family. Anyway, those are the those are the interviews for episode 84. When I was here last time, and I was in my car checking my phone on my way out, a friend of mine texted me, and he wanted me to pass something on to you. Me? Yes. Really? A friend of yours wanted to pass something on to me? Because he knew... He, I think I told he him... He wants you to ask me to tell a story. <laughs> What's the story I'm supposed to tell well, on episode 84? That, Are you going to have me tell that story? Yes. That's About my uncle? The uncle and the fishing. But oh, this my is, God. This, this, Am I really telling that story? I want to hear... It's it. a classic. Am I really... Okay. This is different. He All said, right. uh, tell Mitch yes. we need him to bring back the bigger dance to fill the oh, void. Oh, everybody <laughs> wants to... <laughs> he wanted me to really tell you that, so now I'm telling you. <laughs> the bigger dance is not coming back, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right. It's dead? Yes. It has the... Cur- uh, I guess we yeah. can't joke, no, can we? Don't joke about that so i had a plumber in my house for today of course yeah because i'm at the you mean on sunday on sunday yeah and huge sports fan he's like a high school referee oh really been in the knows gas and you and graz and loves kjr so i sent him the link to our podcast and so he's going to become a listener i hope so So he had no idea that we exist no idea I know, it's like grassroots marketing, one guy at a time. I'm not too proud to send people the link. All right, let's do these four interviews. Four interviews. Some are upbeat. Others are not so much. Dr. Eric Ding, Harvard University scientist. Rick Turner, my old friend. Brady Henderson, Seahawks insider from ESPN. And Doug Briggs will tell us the story of his mother, his beloved mother, Barbara Dreyfus. Hotshot, allow me to remind you that there is no 84 or any other episode of Mitch Unfiltered during these trying times without our incredible partners. Daniel's Broiler, and you can imagine the stress that the Schwartz family is under with our favorite world-class steakhouses in these unprecedented times. How can you help such a wonderful partner of mine for so many years? Well, beyond purchasing gift cards at danielsbroiler.com, don't forget about Schwartz Brothers Baked Goods 
that are on display at your favorite grocery store, same company, same fantastic products. The Kirkland Office of Guild Mortgage. Call 425-250-3150. With turbulence in the financial markets come very special opportunities in some respects. You'll hear Jordan Flowers on episode 84 with three top 1% brokers in the Kirkland office alone. Jordan Flowers has an all-star team that's standing by to save you money, interest rates, Cheap money, buying opportunities, the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Evergreen Golf Call, who's listening to you during the upheaval in the markets, that is the coronavirus. Tyler Hayes' team has been responsibly growing families' money for decades in its private wealth management division with offices along the West Coast, Bellevue, Portland, San Francisco, the Napa Valley. Evergreen and its clients are well positioned to be able to pounce on some opportunities that are coming our way in the economy. Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest. And Zeke's Pizza. For so many years, my family's been huge fans of Zeke's Pizza. What are we doing about restaurants and food during these times of uncertainty? Zeke's president, Dan Black, will join us right here on 84. My family ordered delivery from Zeke's just the other night. Paid in advance, tipped in advance, deliverer dropped the pizza at our front door. We sprayed the boxes to make sure safe and delicious Zeke's pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. We have really botched the public health response over the last three weeks. We should have begun testing three or four weeks ago and when things have been really, really frozen, unfortunately, and we literally potentially missed an eightfold rise that we could have originally contained. But now it's kind of cast out of the bag. Before we get too much further on episode 84, let's get our our friend Dr. Eric Ding in here, Harvard epidemiologist and senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. Incidentally, uh, Dr. Ding was Tab's second biggest influencer on Twitter in the discussion of the coronavirus. Dr. Ding, how are you and your family doing? Are you staying safe? Yeah, we're hanging in here. Just stockpiled on food, but eventually uh, we will all have to go to the grocery store. But doing well otherwise. You know, we talked about the grocery store last week. Before we get into all of this, again, reiterate your views on those of us that have to go to the grocery store to get pharmaceuticals or things for the uh, mm-hmm. for the household or food. How do we do it? Yeah, it's a, it's a necessary thing in which you actually do have to go out. So I think you should actually try to do some distancing from other shoppers. Don't try to go when it's most crowded or at least keep your distance from them. And that is kind of all you can do. Like in Italy, for example, they have rules. Everyone must be at least one meter apart from each other, no crowding. There are capacity limits of how many people can enter a grocery store at a time. I think that actually might make sense because, you know, what you don't want is a mob fighting over groceries and yelling at each other because that is actually the worst thing you can do for you know in terms of containment of the virus i always say to my wife maybe we should go to our 24-hour market late 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 at night but i don't know when they clean i don't know when they disinfect and i don't know what's on all the packages of the food items that i'm going to grab and put in the cart right and oftentimes um, grocery stores are sold out um after morning once they restock overnight so it's a, it's a very tricky issue. And although I would just say you can, there's always ways to, you can disinfect anything you buy. You can use bleach wipes. 
uh, yourself, bleach up some soap, or you could, if you have a UV light, uh, try to disinfect it with UV light, or just use plain old soap because soap actually washes away and breaks up the membrane of the virus. Mm -hmm. So altogether, I think those are small peanuts compared to actually physically going into a grocery store and getting the food that you need. Dr. Ding, where are we compared to last week when we spoke? What's the truth around the country, around the world? Yeah, this epidemic has gotten definitely exponentially worse. Italy is just completely falling apart. Italy had almost 800 deaths in one single day. Spain is also has caught up with Italy. Spain is approximately entering where Italy was about a year ago. Spain actually has more cases per day than uh, almost Italy. And the U.S., obviously, it's getting really bad. New York, they've already said they definitely don't have enough hospital beds, and they will need probably 25,000 more ventilators. And we're entering this really, really stressful phase, and doctors are running out of personal protective equipment, and many places just have given up on testing, which is actually the worst mistake. So we're facing a whole bunch of challenges and shortages. You think we're on our way to a million infections in the U.S. alone, or will we get our arms around this before we get to that point? Well, first of all, you can't know if you have a million infections unless you do a million tests. And we're not even close to doing a million tests yet. I think we're probably around 50,000 tests. In terms of on our way to a million infections, that's highly likely by the end of the year. I think potentially even more than that. But right now, we don't want to talk about you know, those kind of situations because if we hit that level, we have lost all containment. You know, the flattening the curve theory where you don't want a thousand cases all showing up at your hospital in the same week. You want them sh- showing up over two or three months. Right. We've already kind of went over the capacity of the healthcare system, and that's when potentially people could start dying in much larger numbers. When we run out of hospital beds, run out of ICU ventilators, and the hospital staff to um, man the ICUs and monitor people on ventilators. Because if we're losing doctors and nurses at the same time, then there's less people we're able to treat and more people are going to be hurt. To do that, we need to slow the epidemic down so that we can get it to manageable size so we can do these kind of containment measures. And that's ultimately how you will defeat it. The only way to do it is the stay-in edicts. I mean, California, New York, Illinois, other states, I guess we won't see the benefits in numbers and data if there are any, which I assume there will be for a, a while, mm-hmm. because you got to wait, you got to wait a several weeks before you see the ramifications of what we do today. Right, right. It, it will take a little while to see the effects, but I'm pretty sure they will show up. The issue is right now when we're testing, we, we're testing people who are getting very sick, very symptomatic, very shortness of breath, yeah. and have been either admitted to the hospital or need ICU. We're very behind. These are not new cases. These are cases that have already developed for one to two weeks. In order to truly stop the epidemic, we can't can't just do testing on these people who are entering the hospital system with severe symptoms. We need to be testing at the frontiers of whenever someone goes from asymptomatic and develops symptoms for the first time, we immediately need to get those people tested, immediately get those people isolated, and, and contact trace who were they exposed to and quarantine those people. 
that is fighting the fire on the frontier. Right now, we're putting out fires left and right as they pop up, and that's not a strategy to fully defeat this epidemic. So if we get past this backlog of cases and get to the testing frontier, then we will be truly be able to fight against this epidemic with full effect. What do you make, uh, Dr. Ding, of the debate surrounding the impulsive drug testing, the anti-malaria drug that the president radiates optimism? Dr. Fauci has tried to cool everyone's jets on that. Where are you on that discussion? Well, it's anecdotal, and Dr. Fauci is right. There is some case reports here and there of one, one or two patients or a couple improving, but that's not a trial. That's not a, you can't prove causality that way. We can't know for sure it works. At the same time, this drug is also used by not just malaria, but also many other um, patients, and there's chronic shortages of these. So when you're rushing out to use these in absence of any proof, you're also taking this drug away from um, people who need this drug for a proven uh, disease. Um, and also this drug, by the way, it's not a very um, benign drug. It's a very harsh medicine. It has many side effects. And so people should not just be rushing out for these. Do we know that the benefits outweigh the side effects? We're not sure yet. This is why we should wait on this. But there's other promising drugs on the horizon too. And drugs will come out much faster than a vaccine. I have a few questions from listeners that I'll ask you in a minute. How about the upcoming change in weather, Dr. Ding? Will there be any advantage or maybe, I guess, disadvantage to the approach of warmer temperatures throughout the United States? I think the advantage of weather, obviously UV light can kill more viruses, but the main advantage of warmer weather is less people will be congested indoors. It's really that is the main benefit. That's why oftentimes flu slows down in the summer. So I don't think this uh, this uh, epidemic will be slowed down that much by warm weather. It will be slowed down a little, but ultimately it will be slowed down by these containment measures that we do yeah. and the mitigation that we do. Yeah. But the worry is the moment you let off the gas right. of these mitigation, it could have a resurgence. Which, so this is why yeah. you have to put it out with testing and quarantine. Right, which brings me to the next point, which is the discussion surrounding the next round of the coronavirus that I saw last week a lot and whether we will be ready as a country and as a world the next time around, whenever that is, uh, 16 months, 12 months from now. Yeah, that's obviously a main concern. But right now we, we're, we're barely yeah. uh, treading water, keeping our head above water uh, with this epidemic. And worrisome thing is we know the water will keep rising with this epidemic because the onslaught and the epidemic in the U.S. is only going to grow. Given all the lack of testing and all the lack of personal protective equipment for doctors, we're going to be losing a lot of doctors and nurses left and right in terms of either being infected yeah. or being quarantined out of commission. It's going to be a real tragedy because we know 20% of doctors in Italy were infected, um, and there's many other doctors who have died in, in China as well as Italy. So we have to protect our doctors and nurses. If we don't protect them right now, we're literally going to be actually dropping our hospital capacity. If that keeps dropping, 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 
that actually harms the whole population and all the patients. And the way we help them is not necessarily, obviously, getting them more of the sterilized ingredients helps, but really the way we help them is by flattening the curve and sending less bodies to them over a short period of time, correct? Exactly. Yes. To stay home and isolate yourself. Okay. And especially the young people out there who are on spring break partying, you think you're invulnerable. First of all, there's an 18-year-old who died today in UK. You're not entirely invulnerable. Young people are still being hospitalized. And moreover, young people have so much interaction that they can spread it to 10 times more people potentially than someone who is elderly. And those people, you think by staying away from grandma and grandpa, you're safe? Well, by you going out there, you could transmit it to someone who delivers a mail, who delivers a package, or actually helps your grandma and grandpa, and eventually infects them by accident. So even young people, even if you think you're invulnerable, stop being complacent, please stay home and protect you and others around that you love. Not to mention the fact that there are reports out. uh, Dr. Fauci was on CBS on Sunday talking about the reports that younger Americans are suffering more serious symptoms from the coronavirus than initially thought. Let me throw a couple of listener questions at you, and I'll let you go, Dr. Ding. Uh, the terrific Dr. Eric Ding. Billy wants to know, if you test positive, how long are you infectious? When you recover, can you contract the disease again? We talked about this last week on the show, Eric. Right. So the mild cases, which are 80%, mild to moderate, it's about two weeks. It's a, still a pretty severe flu, basically. But uh, the severe cases is about three to six weeks, which is really long. And there's some evidence that even after the symptoms disappear, you could still have a detectable viral load that you're shedding. Now, how infectious? I'm not quite sure. And that's obviously something for emerging virus. We don't know all the details of. But there's data that indicates you could be shedding viruses from 8 to 37 days after you uh, first are infected. So that's a quite, a, quite a long time. So you could potentially, after you get it, still be infecting others for like over a month. How about if you are completely rid of the virus? Can you get it again? Theoretically, but uh, you probably will develop some immunity to it. Yeah. But this is not a strategy. You know, some people talk about <laughs> herd immunity. This is not a strategy no. overall because no. um, in order to develop immunity, remember, a lot of people will get sick from it. Again, a lot of young people even though they don't die usually, will still get hospitalized. And the CDC reports that just came out last week show it. David LaBelle asks, please ask Dr. Ding why this virus, in his opinion, is being treated differently than the flu virus that hits mm-hmm. every year. Uh, David says he's heard lots of people's opinions, but he hasn't heard yours yet. Yeah, and, and this is a very common question. Thank you for asking. But you have to realize, first of all, we all have partial immunity to flu because we've had it before. There's new strains, but we all have some partial immunity. There is a vaccine, mostly effective most years, but at least there's a vaccine for the flu. The flu has a reproductive number uh, of 1.3, which means for every infected person, he or she will infect 1.3 others. This virus, the coronavirus, has a reproductive number of 2.5 to up to 4, and maybe even higher. So this is at least twice if not three times more infectious and in addition this virus has 20 percent of cases have severe 
um, and five to ten percent have potential critical, and you know, mortality is about uh, about one to three percent. Unlike the flu, which is point one percent, so we're talking about ten x to thirty x higher. And finally, the other insidious thing is this virus spreads asymptomatically, even when you have no symptoms yet. Because it takes the virus a few, uh, like about a week on average, to build up viral load before you show symptoms. This virus will still start spreading even before you show symptoms, which makes it extra difficult to control. So, in all these different ways, it is not just the flu; it is much more severe than flu, and it will soon surpass the flu later this year in terms of the total morbidity. And how much burden there is on the hospital system. Aaron wants to know, Doctor Ding, if you start to feel symptoms, obviously without a test, you you think you might have it. What should you do at home? What's the best treatment? Should you treat yourself like you would if you had the flu? Give some uh, suggestions to that. Yeah. So at first, you don't know whether it's the flu or not. So first of all, the flu season is starting to end. It's still not too late to get the flu shot because you do not want to have the flu and this at the same time. But the flu season is starting to end, which means if you if you are coming down with the symptoms, you should start considering, assuming that you have it, isolating yourself from your family from it. Be very mindful of your shortness of breath because that kicks in about a week after symptoms start, and um, try to get a test as soon as possible. You, any doctor can now write you an order, and Assuming that they have the sample collection kits, call ahead to your clinic or your hospital, see if they have the collection kits, or get a doctor's order and then take it to somewhere where they will do the collection for you. And because all the private labs like LabCorp and Quest will do the tests for you if they get a sample from you. This is really key. Try to get tested as soon as possible, but you need a doctor's note first. And but you have to make sure that they have kits to do the testing. So hopefully. Try to get testing as early as you can. I know it's very frustrating in many places, but you have to assume you have to. You might have the, this virus, and you should stay home and isolate yourself and call ahead. Finally, from Chris McCoskery, he wants to know when you think, Doctor Ding, when you truly think the coronavirus got to the United States. Do you think it was in early January? I think it was in early January um, because it could be maybe late December, but it's most likely early January because all. All the Washington cases, for, for example, we know through genomic analysis of the RNA sequence that it was all the Washington cases were actually divergent. They were derived from the first case that was diagnosed in, uh, in Washington State on January 15th. So we know that there wasn't another source. If there was another source that came from somewhere else in China much earlier, we would have picked that up. It would have been a completely new signal because every virus has their own signal, and so the signal we all have is it was all originated from the same virus that affected that first Washington case in mid January. So I don't think it came any earlier, but um, it's certainly possible. But I think it really started in January. But it's now March. When we had frozen testing, we had potentially this epidemic floating around, which we know it happened. For many many weeks, and this virus has a doubling time of six days. 
So every six days, 100 become, cases become 200, becomes 400, becomes 800. And we lost so much time during that time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think the virus started at that time. Dr. Eric Ding, follow him on Twitter. Dr. Eric with a C. Ding, Harvard epidemiologist and senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. He's a must follow on Twitter. Follow all of his work. I can't wait, Dr. Ding, to the time that we have you on the podcast and you share with us some positive indicators. I'm waiting. Everybody's I, I'm waiting desperately. To I, I, I look I'm forward to that. For it. Yes, it will, it, right. it will happen at some point, and I, I can't wait to chat with you when it does. Thank you for being with us. Thanks. There he is, Dr. Eric Ding, Harvard scholar and scientist, banging home that you need to stay away from others if we're going to catch up with the coronavirus. Where would Mitch Unfiltered be without partners like Daniels Broiler? Not very far is the answer. And you don't need me to tell you that we must support local businesses and families like the Schwartz family during these times. It's vital. The same family that owns and operates Daniels also has Schwartz Brothers Bakery and Brenner Brothers Bakery, known since 1903 for their traditional bagels and rye bread. Founded in 1973 to make pies and other desserts for their restaurants, Schwartz Brothers Bakery now offers a delicious selection of fresh breads, bagels, dinner rolls, hamburger hot dog buns, as well as pastries like cinnamon rolls and coffee cake and Danish, and so much more at QFC, Fred Meyer, Safeway, Albertsons, Metropolitan Market, PCC, and other local supermarkets. For a limited time, you can also find Schwartz Brothers Bakery, frosted shortbread cookies, and lemon bars at select Costco warehouses. Schwartz Brothers and Brenner Brothers, proud to continue to provide the community with bread and essential baked goods during these challenging times. It allows them to keep many of their team members employed and look forward to the day when Daniel's Broiler locations can reopen and those valuable team members can come back to work. Daniel's Broiler, Schwartz Brothers Bakery, and Brenner Brothers Bakery, staples of the Northwest community forever. Unfiltered. years ago I moved to Seattle from Washington DC and one of the first people I met I think he was one of the first people I met was this kind of happy-go-lucky employee of the Sonics we were co-owned at that point we shared offices his name was Rick Turner his name is still Rick Turner I think your name is still Rick Turner who was who was one of the few people that befriended Mitch Levy at age 27 at the same, you you and I are about the same age. Is that right? Remind me of that. Yeah, I think so. Early fifties. That's right. I, yeah. I thought I thought our audience would get a kick out of what's become of that friend, and the weird and winding path of following a dream. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you my old pal, Rick Turner. What do you remember about nineteen ninety five? The beginning of nineteen ninety five. Well. I don't remember being happy-go-lucky, so that's kind of cool. That's a good good description. Um, I remember being at a place that was, you know, it's funny as you as you get older, you gain so much perspective. And I, re, when I, when I look back, I remember being in a job that I was probably way 
underqualified for and incredibly had such a great time, you know, um, and anyone in your audience who's uh, fans of the Sonics back in the early and mid nineties uh, can relate. And to be in the epicenter of that whole thing, along with Rick Dupree, I was the first producer at the new all sports station in Seattle, KJR. Oh. And so I was in on the ground floor there and, and uh, you know, it, it started for me with working with my all-time hero, that was Bob Blackburn, who I used to write letters to when I was a kid to hope to get on the Bob Blackburn halftime mailbag. And then I ended up producing his show, my very first job out of college, and he ended up being everything I hoped he was and expected that he was. He was just a salt-of-the-earth guy, one of the one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. Did you did you get a chance to know Bob very well, Mitch? I can't remember no, the timing there. No, I came after. I didn't know Bob at all. Was he nicer than I was back then? Or uh, well, who wasn't really? But <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Bob was great. And then and then they ended up uh, bringing on Calabro to share the 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 show. Yeah, and then they hired some guy named Dave Grosby yeah. and I produced his show yeah. and then it just kind of went on there from there. We just kept adding people and, and then pretty soon uh, there was an opening for one of the shows and uh, they were rotating bodies in there. And a young Mitch Levy was one of those I bodies thought, they rotated. I in. thought when I came there, you were working for the Sonics. Am I wrong about that? What weren't you in the marketing department? Yeah. What were you in like the yeah. broadcast? What the hell were you doing, by the way? Yeah, well, well, <laughs> I, I first went to the Sonics. I first went to the Sonics as an intern. Uh-huh. And that internship then turned into a job as the network producer for Sonic Games. And then that's when I started kind of, I guess around 91 or whatever, started doing the sports talk shows. And then um, what happened was, the fabulous sports babe came to town. It was kind of that, that time when there was a market crash and uh, they were laying people off. A guy named Rick Scott was the program director and he brought me into his office to let me know that they were laying some people off. I wasn't one of them, but um, I needed to do more and work on more shows and, and my job duties would be increasing. I was like, great. It's, you know, I'm glad to have a job. And the next day I came in there and he brought me back to his office to say, we changed our mind and we're keeping, <laughs> we're keeping Chris Martin and we're letting you go. And, and, the, and the reason, the reason they did that is because the sports babe didn't like me. Oh, so, oh, I so, see. <laughs> yeah. So I lost my KJR job oh. and then ultimately went, went back to work for the Sonics. What didn't so, she like about you? What didn't she like about you? Well, you know, who knows, really, but <laughs> I, I do remember a specific time. Um, she, you know, she was from the South. I think she was from Florida. and Tampa. I was a huge Husky fan you know, growing up. And also, people, people nowadays would never think this to be true, but, but back in the late 80s, early 90s, the Pac-10 at that time was dominant. And there was always this discussion of who had the best conference. And so I got into it in a friendly way, I thought, with the sports babe one day about who was better between the SEC and the Pac-10. 
And it, like I said, it was just kind of this friendly argument and I decided to do a little research. So I put a report together for her about, gotcha. you know, comparisons in bowl games and histories and that over- report got you fired. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> she, I gave it to her and she, and I thought it was funny. I gave it to her. She didn't think it was funny at all. And yeah. she said something to the effect of, you always have to be right. Don't you? Or you always have to have the last word. And, uh, that was it. And the relationship was sour after that. Uh, so, okay. I don't know. Answer a few quick questions before we get to your story. When I first came to town that first year, I also did the, the Sonics television broadcast with Marcus Johnson and Kevin Calabro, along with the Midday Show, as you recall. Yeah. And why do mm-hmm. I feel like I remember? I guess my memory is just foggy. I thought you and I worked quasi together on that, or did we not? Did we not work on that? Well, yeah, I was the I was kind of the executive producer of oh. of all the Sonic broadcasts, okay. um, tele, television, radio, pay per view okay. at the time. Okay. Um, and so yeah, so we we we, we worked together in that respect, and then and then I don't know why did you did you get asked to quit doing it or did you quit doing it? I don't remember how. I think that Calabro happened. wanted me out. Really? Yeah, I think Calabro didn't 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 want me or didn't want a sideline guy or didn't want me as the sideline guy. Yeah, we did it a year or two, and then I think Calabro. It was all right. Calabro wanted well, me out. Well, that's what that's what ended up happening with me, and that's how I ended up leaving because. And I don't know whether you and I have talked about this before or not, but I was going to replace you, I think, as a courtside reporter <laughs> and. And well, just courtside reporter because you were more of a host, courtside reporter, halftime yeah, guy. Yeah, and yeah. I was just going to do the courtside I stuff. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. And and so, you know, Calabro and Marcus and Tom Lee and Scott Patrick and and all those guys that were the decision makers in that regard were all on board. And the guy that kiboshed it was John Dracel. Oh. So I went to him, and this was similar to the sports babe thing. I went to, I went, I made an appointment with John and I brought in a dozen donuts. I brought in hot chocolate, coffee, (laughs) orange juice, you know, like trying to, trying to make an impression. I had my tapes from doing play by play of the Bellingham Mariners. I had stuff, you know, where I, I think I filled in uh, for uh, Jeff Aaron. And, and I said to him in this meeting, I'm like, Hey, you know, let's just take the preseason games. You know, here's what I've done. Let me show you what I can do and just give me the opportunity. And he leaned back in his, in his chair, put his hands over his head, mm-hmm. looked at me after nine years at the Sonics and said, this is the Seattle Supersonics. We're not in the business of giving people opportunities. <laughs> and then a light bulb went off over my head. And I thought, what the heck am I doing here? Oh. I mean, I've blood, sweat, and tears for this oh, organization for nine years. And they're <laughs> tell me that they're not in the business of giving you people opportunities. And at that point where I decided, oh, God, you know, I got to do something different. And when you, and when you kind of, when you make that de- decision, you try to get input from the people around you, you know, and, yeah. and you probably have the same conversations with your sons. People say, you know, they they all say the same thing. Find something you love to do, yeah, and go do it, yeah, you know, and pursue that. And yeah. then it's not a job. So I maybe took that a little bit too much to heart because I've been chasing a basketball around the world now for 
a long time and we'll with get not there. much to show for it. We'll get yeah, there. We'll, we'll get there. It, don't, but, don't get the yeah. cart ahead of the horse. Don't get the yeah. cart ahead of the horse. So Dracel told you you couldn't be the Mitch Levy successor on the uh, yeah. on the sideline shows. By the way, that's the same John Dracel, and I like John. I haven't seen him in a long time, but I do like John personally. But John John Dracel also, just so you know, I don't know if you 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 are aware of this, but I went to 25 years of basketball games with my father before he before he passed away. Uh, mm-hmm. At the NCAA tournament, I only missed one game, one NCAA tournament game with my father in 25 years, and that was the national semifinal of 1996. Because John Dracel wouldn't let me get out of a mid-season Sonics game, he said, "You can't go." Was that go. New Orleans? No, it was it was actually Piscataway, uh, New Jersey, or something. You know, like uh, East Rutherford, East <laughs> yeah. East Rutherford, okay. New Jersey. It was the last. It was when they made it to the Final Four. I wasn't allowed I to go. I vaguely remember that. I wasn't allowed yeah, to go you, to that you, semifinal. You painted your face orange. That's right. I painted my face yeah. orange <laughs> as a protest on the Sonics broadcast that yeah. night, that Saturday, that I was not allowed to go see Syracuse beat. Uh, Mississippi State to get to the final game. I painted my face orange to no one knew that. And then I came on and everybody was laughing. And then I left and I went and saw the, the national championship game on Monday. But it was the only game that I missed in 25 years that my father and I did not attend together in 25 years. It was because John Dracel told me that I couldn't go. Okay, so we're going to head over. Real quickly, before we get to your then winding story and what you're doing now, which is incredible, mm-hmm. trust me, everybody, mm-hmm. the kicker to this story. The, the, you're going to love the kicker to this story. You're going to love the end, end result of this story. So two things. You and I then hosted the morning show together, didn't we? Did, did, didn't we bring yeah. you in and we do some shows together on radio? That's my first question. My second question is, were we in, a, were we in an earthquake together, you and me? Yeah. Well, both, both are true. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, I was given the opportunity to fill in for fish when he was on vacation on your show. And then I would fill in for you when you were on vacation on, on your show. Thanks for not taking my job. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. I think the reason why I quit filling in is because I wasn't close to taking anyone's job, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, you came to my bachelor party. In fact, in fact, I I heard your podcast a few months ago with Wheels. Yeah, and I'm not so sure I would I would uh, agree with his assessment of that night <laughs> on a couple of levels. But but um, I'll take that up with him. But uh, yeah, for sure, we were at Kachina Kachina. It was a night of my kind of my work bachelor party because you know when you're you know in your your mid to late twenties, you have multiple, you got your family bachelor party, your close friends bachelor party. That one was in Vancouver. That was a little crazy. And then you got your work bachelor party and we were at Kachina Kachina. And I looked, I remember looking up and remember they had bicycles that were hanging from the ceiling. Yes. Yeah. They they were shaking from the ceiling. Yeah. They were, yeah. Going back and forth. And (laughs) someone said something like, was that an earthquake? And, and yeah. That, that, that never forget that. Night. By that the way, that was the that was the first party that I was ever invited to, and and maybe let me think about this. Yeah, I, it was the last party that I've been invited to <laughs> at twenty five. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, no, that was that was fun. We yeah. I don't know. We 
like I said, and I started out this conversation in this way, when you have the advantage of perspective yes. and experience and age, you look back on things and, and I just, I really never appreciated what those days were, you know? Yeah. I mean, can you, do you ever think about this? Do you ever think about what a young office group, a young group of people that were making decisions at, at a pretty high level for an NBA team that was, you know, one of the tops in the league for three, four years straight and just a bunch of 26 year old know nothings, <laughs> you know, at, 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 at the, at the dials, you know, make, yeah. making calls. Oh, and then, oh, and then I, you know, one of the other things that I think I try to impress upon my daughter and other, other people that I run across is, uh, one of the things that sticks out to me about that time at the Sonics was it just got to be kind of toxic and um, it became, it became, uh, you know, someone would come into your office and you'd whisper about somebody else or talk about how crappy your manager is or, or what terrible owners the, the team has and, and, you know, God, what we wouldn't have done to let the accolades hold the team forever. Right. But, but, you um, you end up just not appreciating what you have at the time, and and that's what I that's what I I think the perspective that, that I've gained over the last few years of that. I if, if I had the chance to do it over, I I, I might not have uh, I might not have stormed out of John Dressel's office. So <laughs> upset. <laughs> All right. Did you ever? I did you talk to Barry and Ginger into keeping the team? Yeah. Did you ever? desire in those days to coach well i was kind of a i was kind of a frustrated athlete who who spent a lot basically my entire college years hurt and and you know not really in the right place and and i never really got to scratch that itch that that i wanted to scratch and so in my job with the Sonics, I was hanging out at practice a lot. And every once in a while, George Carl would allow me to, to get in and, and, I don't know, pass or keep score or, or do something, just involve myself. And I started picking things up. And, and I had been, I had coached with Ed Peppel over at Mercer Island High School while I was with the Sonics. Oh, and, okay. And, yeah, so so I was going to practice every day and, picking things up and, and then, and then it gets back to what, what was said before, you know, like all these people were saying, find something you love to do and you're passionate about and go do it. Okay. And, and so you that's, did. That's kind of what I did. And tell yeah, everybody now, now, go, now yeah. go through it a little bit. Some of the things that you did, cause you decided once you left, you know, I'm going to try to coach and, and some yeah. of, some of the roadblocks and obstacles yeah. to try to get your foot well, in the door somewhere to coach. I gave my notice to Scott Patrick at the Sonics and I walked out and the first person I ran into in the elevator was George Carl. And, you know, in typical fashion, he said, Oh, Hey, how you doing, Hunter? You know, he didn't even know my name, but, um, I said, George, I just quit. I'm going to pursue, uh, coaching. And he said something to me, you know, there's times in your life where things just kind of smack you between the eyes and and he said something that did that and when i tell people this story i don't think they really take it you'd kind of have to know george like you do 
and I do to, to understand it. But I told him, I said, you got any advice for me? And he said, I got one thing. He goes, your players have to hate you. <laughs> and I knew, you know, like you can totally imagine him saying that, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, and knowing, knowing kind of him at the time and what oh. he was going through and what the team was like, oh. I mean, I understood that. But, but the way that I took it, I didn't take it, oh. you know, in, in a way that was the way he said it. The way I took it was you just can't be friends. And there's got to be a line between coach and player. And I was pretty young at the time. And, and that was probably the best piece of advice I could get, because I think where young coaches get into trouble is when they want to be friends with, with, um, with their players and, and the, the, the line is blurred between, between that relationship. But um, I made a phone call to a longtime coach at Bellevue Community College named Ernie Woods. And I said, uh, Ernie, I just quit my job at Sonics and I'd love to come work for you. And he said, uh, after 30 years, I just retired last week. And so I was kind of screwed there. He goes, but I know the new coach. I'll, you know, make a phone call for you. So I went to Bellevue Community College and ended up uh, being a volunteer assistant. I'll never forget. And I, I was working for a guy named Pat Leonard. I'll never forget. You know, this was, this was Pat's first college coaching job. He was um, a high school, successful high school coach um, before that. And he had played for Ernie and coached with Ernie. You know, we were kind of feeling our way through it. And we came to our first game. We were playing Green River Community College. And it was on the road. And it was about, <clears throat> you know, we drive these, you know, 12 passenger vans to the games and it was about 20 minutes before we were supposed to leave. And we just, it just dawned on us that we didn't know where the uniforms were. We hadn't, we hadn't, hadn't thought about it at all. Like we've been worried about, you know, who was who and getting our guys together. And, you know, at that level, get, keeping guys in class and getting the, and all of a sudden we don't, we've got no uniforms. So we dig through all the, we've got the um, keys and combinations of all the oh. closets where all the inventory is, is stored and oh. whether, you know, through the coaching transition or what, um, either the uniforms were stolen or they just were told to keep them. But the only uniforms we could find were from like 1975. <laughs> and so we grab, we grab the box and we, you know, we get a count on them and we've got enough for everybody. And we get to green river and the guys get the uniforms. And if you remember it at that time, that was the long baggy, you know, fab yeah, five yeah, shorts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, we had the John Stockton <laughs> shorter than John Stockton shorts and our guys wouldn't go onto the floor. This was their first college game, you know? And it was my first college game coaching and I was all excited and, you know, like super intense. And we've got our guys like a mutiny in the locker room because they don't want to go. They want to be seen in the, these uniforms from, you know, Dick Snyder and Joe Hassett uniforms. So that's kind of how we got, got kicked off there. And Pat was still a teacher at Juanita high school and his schedule was such that, you know, after two or three years, it just was too tough for him. The work, involved in coaching at the college level. And in the meantime, 
uh, I was hired as the athletic director. Wow. And so, so he decided that he was like, at the time, I think it was like, he's going to take a sabbatical or he's just going to take a year off or something like that. So, so I did what any great athletic director would do. And and I made a, a list of people that were qualified for the job and then hired myself. To be the so head coach. That's how that happened. So you became the head <laughs> yeah. coach. All right. You know, these these podcasts, we don't have a window where we have to be a three-hour or four. We don't want these podcasts mm-hmm. to go 17 hours. So – <laughs> so speed it up a little bit. No, <laughs> You're no. saying you don't, you don't want a 45 minutes on every year I had in coaching? Is that kind of what you're getting at? <laughs> All right. Head, I'll, head, I'll give you the Reader's Digest. Okay. Assistant yeah, to, I, head, to, to athletic director, head coach of Bellevue College. Go ahead. Yeah. Then uh, I left Bellevue in 03 and uh, was like a volunteer consultant for Coach Romar. And so I was at every practice. I was, Why'd you leave? Um, Why'd you leave? Did you get, you get shown well, the door? Yeah. I, they didn't renew my contract. What, so, was, your, what was your career um, record at Bellevue College, Rick? Don't skip over the well, good stuff. I I, okay, I didn't get fired as a coach. I got, I got let go as the athletic director. Oh. And so, and so when essentially when the new athletic director was hired, he said I had three volunteer assistant coaches, volunteer assistant coaches, he told me that I had to get rid of one of them. Yeah, you don't need that. Three coaches is too many. You don't need three coaches. And I said, I wasn't going to fire a guy who's volunteering. <laughs> and so, so, so I just, I just left. And, and, uh, and I called coach Romar. Um, actually coach Romar called me. It was about 11 o'clock at night and he called me and you couldn't believe how excited I was to get a phone call from him. Oh, one um, of the nicest people you know, on the face what, of the earth. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was great. And I it was it literally it was 11 o'clock at night. And I, and I just was just about to turn Kitty Gertson on and watch the uh, Como news. Yeah. The other I picked up the phone. It's a landline. Uh, you appreciate that. And <laughs> this one sure it, isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's coach, and it's coach Romar. And I'm thinking my ships come in. Coach Romar is calling to, to offer me a job. He's heard all the great things about me. And he had, um, called me for a reference on one of my assistant coaches named Russ Shaney. Oh, and yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah. so coach Romar wasn't calling me. He was calling to, to okay. ask about Russ. Okay. And, and so I went and volunteered, ultimately volunteered with them. Right. And, and then when that year was over, I got a job in the ABA, which they were trying to resurrect the the uh, a new version of the old ABA, oh, and in some places it was really cool, yeah. and in other places it was really kind of a joke. How those paychecks do? <laughs> oh, there were no paychecks there. there a lot of a lot of those paychecks bounced. Almost all of them bounced. And what's, matter of fact, what we had city? A, we had another player mutiny. What city? Yeah, it was it was here. Okay, yeah, was, the team was called the Bellevue Blackhawks. Okay, and it was cool because I had a bunch of just local guys. And I kind of considered us like the back of our jersey should have said Chico's Bail Bond <laughs> because we were the bad news bears. Yeah. And, yeah. We were, and, and a lot of the teams had former NBA guys on it. Okay. And, and we ended up playing basically the entire season on the road and in the ABA championship game in Little Rock, Arkansas, in front of 15,000 people. Or the Arkansas team had Todd Day, Oliver Miller, 
Scotty Thurman, Kareem Reed, <laughs> and you know, was Nolan, got, was Nolan Richardson the, the coach? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't remember who the coach was right now. But but and um, you never got paid. I think I got one paycheck, may have, <laughs> may have cash. I didn't worry. Like you know what though, I I didn't care. I wasn't doing it for that. Yeah. So yeah. So the players did yeah. certainly, and we had some guys that 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 bailed because they weren't getting paid, and 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 I tried to convince them that you're putting tape together, and this yeah. could lead to other opportunities. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes that was an easy sell, and sometimes it wasn't. Okay, hold on. So hold that on. whole thing went. Yeah. All right, athletic director at Bellevue College, head coach at mm-hmm. Be- assistant coach at Bellevue College, head coach at Bellevue College, shown the door as the athletic director to the University of Washington as kind of a volunteer assistant. Now the ABA. Now what? Where do we go? Where does Rick Turner's journey take him from the ABA? Where do we go next? Well, I had a really good interview with a guy in Anaheim with a, at the time it was a D league at the time it was the NBDL. Then it turned into the D league. Now it's the G league. And I had a a really good interview and was pretty certain I was going to get a job uh, for the Anaheim arsenal was pretty excited about it, you know, because I had seen a lot of coaches go from Quinn Snyder. CBA Quinn or, Snyder. Well, yeah. I, I mean, George Carl, uh, yeah. Phil Jackson, Flip Saunders, Nick Nurse. Um, there's just a, there's a ton of there's a ton of them um, uh, that have have gone from minor league basketball onto the onto the league. So I was super excited about the opportunity, and. You know, the, my phone wasn't ringing, and I got kind of concerned. And I called the uh, president of the club, and he said, "You know, we just got this opportunity to hire a former NBA head coach who just got uh, let go, and it's just something we can't pass up." And so they ended up hiring Sam Vincent oh. as 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 their head coach. Sure. And there's a reason why I bring that up, but the, you know, Sam Vincent went five and 35 with Anaheim. And, you know, that was, that was that for them, but, but that is of no importance. Um, so, so I was like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. I've had it. It's time for me to get serious. You know, recess is over. I've got to, I've got to get a real job. And as soon as I came to grips with that um, in my head, my phone rang and Bob Weiss called me. Oh. And you remember Coach Weiss. He right? wanted to do some magic tricks for you. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. And he did. <laughs> and he did. So I had talked to Dwayne Casey about a recommendation. I think I spoke with Nate McMillan and, and trying to get them to help me get the D League job. And then it didn't happen. And Coach Weiss was, had just got hired for a head coaching job in China. And um, he was looking for an assistant and he talked to coach Casey and that's how that whole thing happened. And I ended up going to China for a year with Bob Weiss. And I mean, what a crazy experience that was. (laughs) In fact, I was writing emails home to to people about what was going on. I remember. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We had a crazy owner and, and we had Bonzi Wells on our team, and, oh, and we had a former Sonic um, Illumide Oyedeji. <laughs> Bonzi Wells, by the way, you know he 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 hated Chinese food, and it was just it was miserable experience oh, for him because he had to he, he had to have cheeseburgers everywhere he went. <laughs> so I ended up coming home and writing a book about that whole experience 
called If My Name Was Phil Jackson, Would You Read This? And it kind of was about all those minor league experiences and then my, and my time in China. And then once I, once I came back from China, it was, I was kind of in the same situation of like, well, I think I've taken this as far as I, I can go. And I remember your good friend, uh, Rick Neuheisel, when he was fired from UW. I remember reading a story about him going to work at Rainier Beach. Yes. And so I sort of took that approach and I just was, I've been coaching kids for a while. Liberty, right? Yeah, Liberty, um, in the kind of the Liberty Select program for my good friend Omar Parker. And, um, you know, Omar actually got me involved in doing camps for kids in Jamaica about 20 years ago. And so every summer I've been going down to Jamaica to do um, basketball camps for underprivileged kids. And, you know, the first year we went down there, we had about 60 kids. We were on blacktop courts, chain nets. We spent the first day down there, you know, before camp started sweeping the courts of the gravel and came out with, you know, four four barrel size loads of, of just gravel off the courts and, and fast forward, you know, 20 years later, we do it at the National Stadium. We have 350 kids that week. We do six other camps around the island. And then six years ago, we, go, we started going to Haiti as well. So that has kind of turned into my, my basketball focus. And about a year ago, I was given the opportunity to coach the Jamaican national team. Ah. So that's where I am now. Oh. And it's, it's really, it sounds kind of cliche, not kind of cliche. It sounds totally cliche, a dream come true job. And you hear people say that a lot. And, and sometimes I guess you can believe them. And other times you're, they're just filling the space with words, I guess. But this really, really is for me because uh, the people in Jamaica have become, you know, an extension of my family what I've seen down there and the the passion they have for the sport. It was just something that I've pursued and coveted for a long time for it to actually happen now is it's kind of like pursuing a girl for a long time. And you just want to, you just want her to, you know, go out on a date with you. And she keeps saying no, all of a sudden she says yes. And you're like, Oh, now what? Yeah. So it's real now. And um, there's nothing but incredible potential They've never made the Olympics, so we've set a goal to be participants in the 2024 Olympics in Paris. It's a heavy lift, but I think it's one that's definitely doable. For any of your listeners that are college basketball fans, we've ha- we have three guys this year uh, in NC2A basketball that had just amazing, great years. Kofi Coburn in Illinois was freshman of the year in the Big Ten, uh, seven-footer. Uh, Nick Richards in Kentucky uh, was a first-team All-SEC guy, and Romaro Gill, a 7-2 player from uh, Seton Hall, who was Defensive Player of the Year in the Big East and uh, Most Improved Player in the Big East. And and so those kind of guys are going to be the foundation moving forward. And then we've got guys that are spread around the world uh, playing in various leagues. We have no one in the NBA. You know, we're trying to change that. Um, but, uh, yeah, super excited. Is there anybody in the yeah. NBA, Rick, that you could – that would uh, qualify to be on the Jamaican national team? And what about well, – uh, obviously 2020 may or may not happen now, but 
You're talking about 2024. Are you, were you guys yeah. before the coronavirus not even interested in 2020? Well, the qualifying had already happened. I see. And 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 the the program was in such a place that they didn't even try to uh, qualify. I see. Okay. Um, okay. The reason I brought up the Anaheim Arsenal story to you is because the last time they were decent was in 2013, and their head coach was Sam Vincent. So he left there, and now I have an opportunity to uh, actually replace him. Would we know any so, NBA players that would be available to you guys? No, that's the funny thing. There, there really aren't any – those three guys I mentioned will all be NBA players. Right. There are guys that are in the NBA that could play, but most of them play for Canada or the U.S. team. I see. Right okay. now. So, okay. like, Jamal Murray is a, is a great example oh, of, a, of a guy. Oh, gosh. Yeah. His, his parents are Jamaican, oh. uh, but he's, he's on Team Canada. What can I do to get him to uh, switch? Uh, well, hey, let's, uh, we can both work on that together. You know, he did a kids camp in Montego Bay this summer for the first time, and he's starting to give back to Jamaica a little bit. You know, just ironically on a local level, Isaiah Stewart, his, uh, his, I think his dad is Jamaican, uh-huh. but he's, uh, he's on the um, USA under, uh, under 19 team or sure. under 21 team or something. Sure. So. so Rick Turner – went from young friend of Mitch Levy at a bachelor party at Kachina Kachina in a, an earthquake. He went from there, round and round and round we go, and now he's the Jamaican national basketball coach. Unbelievable. Unbelievable story. Who's, who's now focused on trying to take the Jamaican national team into the 2024 Olympics. Where are the 2024 Olympics? Paris, France, my friend. Okay. Paris, France. Better shot than the Jamaican bobsled team, right? Well, I hope so. <laughs> and I hope they end up making a movie out of it. Uh, uh. But, but, but we're just at the beginning of the story. That's, what, that's what's kind of funny about this is as we bored people for the last 20 minutes or whatever talking about what I've done. 45. I think what's – yeah. <laughs> well <laughs> – I think I think the thing about it is that this story is just getting started, and I think it's going to be super exciting. It's going to be fun to be a part of, and I would invite anyone that is you know within earshot of this to get involved and be a part of it. and And they can do that by going to our, our website, JamaicaBasketball.org. Yeah, you know the sky's the limit in terms of people how they want to be involved. Uh, we certainly could use uh, financial support. I'm open to anything. Ultimately, the goal is is getting to the Olympics, and I don't know that there's a certain recipe for that. But I'm I'm open to uh, anyone's proposals or suggestions and ideas. So my contact information is on there, and uh, I just I just want as many people to share in this. Uh, you don't have to be Jamaican to appreciate an underdog story and something that it doesn't just affect the lives of, of 12 people on a basketball roster. Anyone that understands what the Sonics meant to Seattle, just as an example, and what they gave to the community culturally, the fact that, you know, your kids' favorite basketball players are, you know, likely not Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, Detlef Shrimp. You know, they're looking at guys like Kevin Durant and God bless Kobe Bryant and, and, and those sort of guys. And they should be, they should, their favorite players should be 
Seattle players and, and, and former Sonics. And, and so that's what we're trying to do in Jamaica as well. We're trying to build a culture down there where, where the kids have someone to look up to and, and want to emulate and give them hope to improve their lives. And, and so it's, it's bigger than just a basketball game. And I think that's, that's more than anything. What I want to try to get out there is, is that this can impact people in a, in a big way beyond just wins and losses. What's the website again? JamaicaBasketball.org. Okay. I don't think, you know, I'm old. You don't have to do the WWW thing anymore. Right? Okay. No, no. I don't think so. Okay. Do you guys need a Florida born over the hill halftime pregame host? who has experience working with Marcus Johnson and Kevin Glass. <laughs> Can you paint your face black, green, and gold? And, and <laughs> we could probably make that work. Oh. oh, boy. Unbelievable. What a story, Rick Turner. So everything's on hold now, obviously. Around the world, everything's on hold. Uh, yeah. I, I wish you nothing but the best. I can't wait for you to come back on. Hopefully it'll be less than a 45-minute conversation the next time. But uh, I can't wait for you to come back on from time to time and give us updates once we, we get to the end of the tunnel. Hopefully there'll be some light at the end of the coronavirus tunnel at some point. We can all get on with our lives and and keep track of the Jamaican national basketball team under the direction of Rick Turner. Who are your assistant coaches? Do we know any of them? Well, I've got four Jamaican assistants, and then I've got uh, four American assistants. But I've got Russ Shaney, who we talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, Omar Parker, who uh, I got me involved in Jamaica to begin with, and a guy named Kyle Plank, who lives out in Michigan, coaches at at Hope College. And then um, I said four, I have three American assistants. And I've got four Jamaican assistants, Rowan Robinson, uh, Nyron Hurd, Damon Sullivan, and um, uh, Morgan. I can't think of his first name right now. Cleon Morgan. <laughs> well, we don't call him Cleon. So. Get, get to know him. Get to know your assistant. Yeah. Rick, this is fantastic. I hope everybody enjoyed it. My guess is is that no one really enjoyed it as much as you and I did, kind of going back over the I, years. <laughs> and that's cool, too, though. It's nice to catch up with you, right? Oh, gosh. What a Not great... Not run into you at a, at a high school gym. Oh, what a great, zany, crazy basketball life story starting with the Sonics back in the uh, in the early to mid-90s. Great stuff, Rick. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for being a part of Episode 84. Thanks, buddy. My old friend Rick Turner from original KJR producer and Sonics intern to the head coach of the Jamaican National Basketball Team. I hope you got as much a kick out of that segment as I did. The financial markets have obviously been unsteady, to say the least, but with that comes some very favorable opportunities to borrow money, and that's where it's important to hear from our great partner, Jordan Flowers of the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Thank you for having me on, Mitch, and I want to give a quick thank you to all your patrons and listeners that have reached out to us over the past really year, uh, especially in the last several months. So thank you to all your faithful listeners and trust in us. Uh, Right now is unprecedented time and amazing time to be 
looking at real estate. I know uh, quite a bit of refinance calls coming in, talking to clients, but also the home buying arena right now, as far as opportunities in real estate with either looking at listing your home and buying, but there are certainly opportunities as far as investment properties or finding a home. Listings are still coming on. It's a hot market here in Seattle and plenty of great opportunities for for people to be buying and getting into homes right now. What would you say about the numbers? Should we know anything about refinance numbers and interest rates and, and what's going on in the marketplace, Jordan? Interest rates are still all-time lows. Every leading indicator right now is uh, showing that rates are are low and uh, projections are for them to stay low, especially with all the uncertainty in the market. Typically, when stocks go down, money moves over into into the bond market, the securities of the U.S. bond market. So as far as interest rates and buying right now, rates are low a great time to look at buying or even still refinancing for sure so the people that are calling in right now to jordan flowers's guild mortgage team in kirkland the phone's ringing what are people on the other end looking for right now you know it's across the board we have people calling in looking to simply drop their interest rate uh stay on the same term of payoffs perhaps drop their interest rate and save the most uh monthly Drop their interest rate and take cash out for home projects or paying off student loans or credit cards. Just across the board, uh, their savings for, for anybody there. A lot has been dropping from maybe 27 years left to potentially 20 years left and, and speeding up the payoff cycle. So quite a bit of uh, opportunity on the refinance side to, to save money or accelerate the loan payoff and build more equity. So, yes, the Fed cuts rates to zero on Sunday, but the Fed rate and mortgage rates are not the same. Short-term loans, cars, credit cards, etc., versus home purchases. Give Jordan Flowers a call directly at 425-250-3150 and see if your family can turn this horrible time into something of a positive. Jordan Flowers and the Kirkland Office of Guild Mortgage, 425-250-3150. Unfiltered. He's out. John Cruz, the back 30. Good pressure by the first round pick. Bruce Irvin sacking Rutgers. Pete Carroll told us it's just a matter of time before Bruce Irvin impacts the game. Rosen getting the pressure, and down he goes inside the 10, and it was... Jaron Reed with his third sack of the season, the loss of nine yards. The guy that goes after the quarterbacks, the biggest name on the defensive side is Jadavian Clowney. How much interest is there for the former top pick in the draft? Well, there's been interest, but there's not enough to meet his asking price. He has wanted north of $20 million, but teams have looked at him as a player who had 31 tackles last year with three sacks, and they're not paying north of $20 million for a guy who had three sacks. So the standoff continues in free agency. If you don't get your money early on, the market usually bottoms out. There's got to be room on episode 84 to talk a little free agent NFL football, in particular our Seattle Seahawks. Here he is, my guy, Brady Henderson, ESPN Seahawks insider. you got to follow him on Twitter. He's on top of all the Seahawks happenings. And I hesitate to say that, Brady, because there haven't been too many Seahawks (laughs) happenings. Is this is... Did you, did you expect it to be this quiet, John Schneider, and the Seahawks to be this quiet during free agency? 
Yeah, you know, on one hand, just looking at their recent M.O. and free agency and really their M.O. throughout, you know, John Schneider and Pete Carroll, they have not really uh, made a ton of splash um, outside additions in terms of free agents. Now, we know they've made trades and everything, but just in terms of pure unrestricted free agents, it's been kind of those, you know, middle tier, uh, maybe second, third day deals that, that aren't, you know, they don't cost a ton of money. I thought that might change this year just because the fact that they need pass rushers uh, as badly as they do, those guys tend to be expensive, and the Seahawks um, had, you know, have more cap space this year to play with than they have in years past. So given the history, it's, it's not all that surprising. I just thought that we would have seen um, that, that big move made by now for a pass rusher, and a lot of people thought that Genevieve Clowney would be signed uh, either by the Seahawks or by somebody else by this point. Why do you think he hasn't been? I think it's a combination uh, of a few things. Uh, I, I, I think that you know what's going on with the coronavirus uh, and how that's affecting NFL teams. I do think that's had an impact on him, just because he's a guy with you know an injury history even before you know the core muscle injury that he had last year. You know, dating back to his time with the Texans, there was a knee injury, there was another core muscle injury, um, and those are just the two that come you know at the top of my head right now. And so that's a guy that I would think that teams would want to bring him in for a physical. Um, and they're not able to do that right now. So I think that's part of it. I also think that, you know, maybe teams might not want to pay him what he wants. The number that I've heard is, you know, around $20 million. Uh, and I know other people have reported that as well. I think that's, a, that's kind of a long way to go for teams, you know, for a guy that only, you know, we know he gets a ton of pressure, fifth in ESPN's pass rush win rate last year, uh, but only had three sacks to show for it. So I think between, you know, the fact that there's the injury history and the complications uh, with not being able to physical him and the fact that teams just don't think that he is worth what he thinks he's worth, I think that's what's going on. Do you think that in a way this has played right into the Seahawks' hands, that they don't have to give him the $20, $25 million a year contract? They may not have to give him a contract with a lot of years on it. Do you think that this has kind of worked out beautifully for John Schneider and that it will ultimately end in not only a signing, signing back here in Seattle, but a very, you know, a very efficient-looking contract? Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I think this could end up being best case scenario for the Seahawks. And I was not under the impression before, you know, the negotiating window started. I was under the impression that, you know, I, I thought it was more likely that he signed elsewhere because I thought that, you know, a guy Somebody, like that who's yeah. getting to free agency yeah. uh, would would get a deal around $20 million or maybe, you know, $19, $20, 21000000 million. And I just didn't think the Seahawks would pay that. It, it, but at the same time, there was an argument that they should have paid that. And so I think it would have been, I think, justifiable for them to go that high, um, just given what he can do, given the impact he can have. You saw him take over that Monday night game. I, I never got the sense that they were inclined to go that high, and it doesn't look like they will have to. So you could get Genevieve Clowney for, uh, what, $17, 18000000 million. Not only do you have your impact edge rusher, but you might still have some money left over to get another guy, which, uh, as we all know, as we all watched the Seahawks last year, and it was Clowney and really nobody else in, in the way of impact edge rushers. Uh, we all know that they need that guy, and maybe even one more guy in addition to Bruce Irvin. Yeah, and before we get to who might that second guy be, the flip side to all of this, I, I think you're going to tell us is, now the Seahawks better re-sign Jadavion Clowney. I mean, who's left? I know the Griffins left from Minnesota, but considering how statistically poor the Seahawks defense was overall last year and he was the one shining part of this and then everybody else has kind of signed up now during free agency how costly would it be if we find out that Jadavion Clowney comes to terms with somebody else now 
the Seahawks would be left holding the bag, right? They would. And and now you're looking at, you know, in terms of available impact edge guys, you're looking at kind of those middle tier guys, unless you want to spend, you know, not only a lot of money, but also draft picks, uh, you know, for a tagged, a franchise tag player like Matthew Judon from the Ravens, uh, Yannick Ngakwe of the Jaguars. And I, I wouldn't rule that out, but of course you're talking about not only paying that guy a lot of money, but giving up uh, potentially, you know, substantial draft capital to get that guy. So right. that route becomes more expensive. And, you know, what I would remind people that the three tagged pass rushers that got traded last year, D Ford, uh, Jademia Clowney and Frank Clark, you know, only D Ford was traded early in free agency. The other two guys, Clark and, and uh, Clowney, of course, were much later. So if, if they, you know, if Clowney ends up signing somewhere else, remember that that could still be an option. And it, even if it doesn't happen for a while, but the more sensible route to go would just be to sign Jademia Clowney. And then, you know, in terms of other guys, it's yeah. you're talking about Clay Matthews, uh, Everson Griffin, who's, you know, both of those guys have the connection to Pete Carroll, but they are, um, you know, older guys in their early 30s. Um, and, and it's kind of guys like that. You know, it could be, you know, another big-name player who is not really on a lot of people's radar. It could be somebody like Benson Mayoa, you know, another former Seahawk that um, actually had, I think, eight sacks last year or right around that. So um, a productive player in a limited role last season. So if it's not Clowney, they're going to have options. But Clowney, I think, is their best option. But even if it is Clowney, there's those of us that are still pounding our fist. It's not enough. Clowney, by his lonesome, doesn't make the defense good enough to be a Super Bowl contender, I don't think, unless you disagree with me. And if you do agree with me, then who's the somebody else? I'm assuming all these guys that you just mentioned would be guys they would turn to in lieu of Clowney if they lose him. What about a guy that they could bring in in addition to Clowney to be that other guy and to improve the defense? Yeah, I think some of those names I mentioned, you know, Clay Matthews, I don't think he's going to cost you more than $10 million. I wouldn't think that Everson Griffin, you know, again, another guy in in his early 30s has been productive, but, you know, I don't think a guy, you know, in that age range is going to cost you a ton of money. So I think that you could maybe, if Clowney comes in at the numbers that it looks like, he might be available for at this point. I, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of, of still having enough money left over to uh, to get one of those kind of middle-tier guys. Probably wouldn't be able to do someone like Ngakwe or Judon just because those guys are, again, going to be more expensive and you got to give it the draft pick. But I agree with you. I, I think that even if they get Clowney, I think you still need one more guy in addition to, to okay. him and Bruce Irvin. And I'll give you a stat that, that kind of backs that up. Okay. You know, According to our numbers at ESPN, he was double teamed. Clowney was double teamed uh, at the third highest rate among edge rushers last season, qualifying edge rushers. And the reason for that was that the opposing offenses didn't have anybody else to really worry about. It was Clowney and nobody else. So if you're going to invest that money in Clowney, and if you want to get you know more pressure than you got last season, you've got to get somebody to take the you know some of the heat off him and take the attention off of him. And Bruce Irvin, I think, is a start that's going to help. But I, I still think you'd need one more guy in addition to, to Clowney or whoever that primary guy is. On Sunday, they added, I believe, a fourth offensive lineman. Do I have that right? That number right? Four yep. new free agent offensive linemen, and yet. Outside of the guy from the Jets who might start at right tackle, they all seem like just depth guys to me, unless the Seahawks are readying themselves to cut a big-name veteran player and his salary. What do you make of the four guys that they got, and are any of these guys starters opening day? Yeah, I, I think the contract numbers uh, that Brandon Shell got, you know, two years, $11 million, that's, that's not backup money. And so I, I would imagine that he is their starting right tackle 
taken over for Jermaine Effetti, who, by the way, um, remains unsigned. And, you know, I, I don't know. And just in looking at, you know, his background, Brandon Shell's background, I'm not sure if that's going to be a huge upgrade over Effetti, frankly. The, the past uh, block win rate numbers are similar. He hasn't been as durable as Effetti, but I think just with the um, – he's also older than Effetti, and, and just with the numbers that he's getting, though, $11 million over two years, that tells me that he's more likely uh, to be their starting right tackle than their backup. And I know B.J. Finney, he was one of the other guys they signed to a two-year Steelers, deal. Yep. I think it was up to $9.5 million on his deal. So you're also talking about – that's probably more than backup money, and the fact that he has played guard and center – um, I think that increases the the his chances of ending up in the starting lineup. Exactly where, don't know. It could be at uh, left guard. You know, Mike Ayupati is a free agent, and you know, with the money that they've spent uh, on him, and uh, you know, Chance Warmack, I do not anticipate that being a very expensive deal. But just the fact that they've added two guards seems like they are prepared to to move on from Mike Ayupati. So. Finney is an interesting one because he can play guard, uh, he can play center, and you know we all know with the uncertainty, you know, with Justin Britt, just the high cap number coming off the torn ACL. You know, his cap number, 11.4 million. That's high enough to where I would have wondered if he would have been on shaky ground, even if he hadn't got hurt, and especially now that he is coming off that torn ACL. So I would anticipate. I think there's a good chance that B.J. Finney ends up in the starting lineup, whether it's at center. Uh, or left guard. You think there's anything left to do during free agency outside of what we've just talked about to improve the the starting 22 on offense or defense, or do you think everything else that has to happen, whether it be wide receiver, whether it be linebacker, whether it be the corner, where Flowers, you know, competition for Flowers starting spot, you think everything else has to be done via the draft, Brady? Uh, I, you know, I, I I think it would make sense to find somebody, find a, you know somebody to compete with Trey Flowers at right cornerback um, in free agency. And obviously, you know, a week into it, you're not going to get Byron Jones. You're not going to get you know somebody like that. You're going to get a guy who's you know you're bringing him in to compete with uh, with Flowers for that job. And that, that certainly wouldn't preclude them from drafting that guy. Uh, you know, spending an early pick on the draft. I just don't think you could go into the draft sort of needing to do that because then you you might get backed up against the wall there. And we've seen them, you know, positions that they really want to address in an off season. They'll you know they'll sign a, a free agent who is sort of a hedge for you know a draft pick. And you know, say they want to address that position in the draft, they get the free agent there, the veteran guy who who is sort of a hedge there. So I would think that you know that would make a lot of sense just because. You know, they need to get better at that position. And maybe that ends up being Flowers taking a big jump uh, in year three, which you saw Shaquille Griffin do in year three. But one way or another, they've got to get better at right cornerback. And they're still manpower away from being right at defensive line, right? They lost Quentin Jefferson. Even if they get Jadavion Clowney back and one other guy like we just spoke of, they need guys, right? Unless some of these guys that were supposed to be real rotational players and productive players that wouldn't. I'm thinking of L.J. Collier as one as an example. They need manpower on the defensive line still yet. Yeah, I, I could see them you know, trying to get another defensive tackle. Remember, that the guy who started for the majority of the season there, uh, Al Woods, I know he missed the final four games with that suspension, but he was your starter there for the majority of last season, and he's an unrestricted free agent. Uh, who's yet to sign there? So that's another guy that they they've got to right. replace. And um, you know, you mentioned L.J. Collier and, and Quentin Jefferson, and you know, Quentin Jefferson, he was a good player for them. I think yeah, I would even say an underrated player. But that's not a guy that I really fault them for not paying to keep, just because 
I think you've got to look at that defensive line and say, look, it, it wasn't very good last year. How how much should they spend to keep the band together when the band wasn't very good? <laughs> right. You know, so right. um, certainly it makes a ton of sense to, to re-sign Jadeveon Clowney and Jaron Reed, too. I like the deal that they got Jaron Reed back on, uh, even though it is it is a little bit of money. But I don't think it makes sense to try to keep everybody on that defensive line together when we saw that it wasn't very good last year. Have I missed anything? Have we missed anything? Anything we need to discuss before we uh, adjourn until the uh, the draft? Oh, boy. Uh, K.J. Wright had a $1 million roster bonus due on Sunday. So, oh, okay. Um, Logically, if, if the Seahawks were going to cut him, they, um, they probably would have done it before Sunday. Now they can still, I believe they could still restructure his contract, which I think that would make sense just because he has a $10 million cap uh, number for, for 2020, which is getting up there. But certainly he, he showed enough you know, last season with that bounce back season to, um, to think that he should still be the starter there. But I wonder if they might do something to adjust that cap figure to get that number a little bit lower. Brady Henderson, you got to follow him on Twitter. You have to. He's a must-follow. Read his work on ESPN and ESPN.com. Brady Henderson, the Seahawks insider for the ESPN family. Brady, I hope that you guys are good. Your family's good. You're safe and sound. Look forward to chatting with you again down the line. Thanks so much. All right, Mitch. Thanks to you. I hope all's well with you, and uh, we'll talk to you later. ESPN Seahawks insider Brady Henderson. The Jadeveon Clowney sweepstakes continue Could he be on the way back to the Seahawks for a lesser deal than we expected? Evergreen Golf Call is well positioned for this downward turn in the markets. The Evergreen Private Wealth Management Division has been managing families' monies for decades with the goal of comfortable retirements for people all over the world. I've had personal experiences with other firms that really only want to know if I meet their minimum beforehand. Tyler Hayes' team is different in that respect. Their client compatibility survey at evergreengolfcall.com is one of the several ways that Evergreen listens and understands your unique situation before even the first conversation. Everyone's risk tolerance, time horizon, investment preferences, they're all different. Evergreen's wealth consultant gets that information ahead of time so that he or she can tailor make an approach and strategy that's perfect for you and your family's needs. There are even times that Evergreen reaches out to prospective clients to let them know that their investment philosophies just don't align. And that's okay. EvergreenGovCall.com, G-A-V-E-K-A-L.com, a perfect place to start. Just click on its client compatibility survey and answer a few questions. No commitment, just a starting point. Evergreen GovCall, a premier wealth manager during these times in the Northwest and beyond. Unfiltered. Four new cases of coronavirus in King County are all people who lived here at Life Care Center of Kirkland, a nursing home. Three of them are still in the hospital. They're in critical condition. A woman in her 80s, a woman in her 90s, and a man in his 70s. Then there's a fourth person, a man in his 70s, who died yesterday. Tonight, we're learning more about just how far this virus may have spread beyond this property. Episode 84 continues, and as we attempt to kind of strike the right balance, the correct tenor on Mitch Unfiltered, kind of mixing some levity and giggles as an escape with the baseline seriousness of what's going on in the world, we welcome in one of our podcast listeners. Doug Briggs reached out to me via email 
to share the story of his beloved mother, Barbara. And he has graciously accepted my invitation to be with us and do so with our audience. Doug, how are you? How's your family holding up? Hi, Mitch. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, we're doing good. It's it's the, my go-to word the past couple of, uh, what, two and a half, three weeks now is surreal with everything that happened with mom. We just had to go straight into a quarantine and we weren't able to, everything was over phone with family. So it's, it's, it's been kind of interesting that way. You know, normally you get to, you get to grieve when somebody passes and, you know, hug people and there's been no hugging. Yeah. There's been no contact with people. And that, I think that for me has been the hardest thing about this. Which is in microcosm what the world is now going through and being asked to go through at yeah. this difficult and troubling time. It, you know, it, it's so challenging for many of us to completely connect with the tragic nature of the coronavirus just because most of us don't have friends and family testing positive yet. Unfortunately, by all indications, that's going to change for all of us. Tell us about your mom, Barbara. Start from the beginning. I, I think it's a story that needs to be heard. I don't mean to to trouble you even more than you already are, your family, but I think it's uh, it, it might be healthy for some of our listeners to hear your mom's story. So my mom, uh, as you know from the email, my mom was a resident of Life Care Center of Kirkland. Um, she had been since May of last year. She'd been in a nursing home down in uh, the Phoenix area for several years, and she was finally healthy enough that she could travel and go on a plane. So we moved her up here last year. And so she'd be closer to me, a mile and a half from my house. And I could see her on a weekly basis. And things were good there. Um, it was nice to be able to pop in, you know, just at a moment's notice and say hi. It's amazing. I mean, we were... On Tuesday, February 25th, I was sitting down visiting with my mom and we were talking about what we were going to do that upcoming weekend because her sisters were going to fly into town for a visit. How old was your mom? Mom was 70, 75 years old. Yeah. Sisters were coming to visit. So we were talking about what restaurants to go eat at because um, mom, mom can, you know, we can take her out of the nursing home. She was on, she was on oxygen, but it's not like she was trapped in there or bedridden or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Talked about some family things, you know, a couple of memories that I'd had about something. I was asked for a question about flying somewhere. And Doug, what was her underlying medical conditions? If I might ask, mom had COPD and uh, congestive heart failure. Okay. So she, about four years ago, she'd had that. Okay. Everything at the time she, you know, she seemed good. I've visited mom in the nursing home over the years, um, even on visits or talking to her on the phone and she had good days and bad days and everything, but nothing that seemed like it was anything serious, you know? And on Thursday, the 27th, I had gotten a call from her, but I wasn't able to answer my phone. So I called her back and she didn't answer her phone, which isn't anything unusual that happened occasionally. And because she lived close, I decided to swing by and stop in and visit with her on that Thursday stopped in and she wasn't feeling good. They had turned her oxygen up a little bit. She was having, she said, you know, they thought maybe she might have, she might have some pneumonia or something. They weren't sure they were going to do an x-ray. And so we talked for a few minutes and I went home for a little bit, told her I was going to finish up an errand. I'm going to come back by then they'd have done the x-ray and we'd find out what the results were and what's going on with her. I got a call two hours later instead from Life Care, and they said that mom was being transported to Evergreen, to the ER up there. I immediately got in my car, went up there, got up to Evergreen. At the same time, the, the medics were transitioning her to a bed. 
And so they're going to run tests and everything. I'm talking to the, the doctors and the nurses, you know, hey, what's going on? You know, in the past, mom had like a little infection with something that might have, you know, given her this sort of feelings. You know, like I said, they thought it might have been pneumonia. And so they were going to run tests and transfer, put her upstairs into a hospital room upstairs. So I hung out for about three hours. And at the time, nothing was ever discussed, you know, no coronavirus, nothing. That wasn't anything that was a topic or anything at that time. You didn't, you had never heard of the coronavirus at that moment? I'd heard of it, obviously, from watching the news, okay. but didn't associate it anything going on with my mom. We, I think at that time we knew there was that one, um, something up in Bothell, I think Bothell High School had okay. been in the news, okay. I think, in that, that couple of days. Yeah. How about siblings, Doug? Do you have siblings? Where are they? I have a younger sister down in California. Okay. So, so Friday night, they were going to run tests. I hung out at the hospital for about three hours. Um, they'd move mom up to a hospital room up in the critical care unit and visited with her, checked in with, you know, making sure everything's cool. And then so told her I'd see her the next day, came back the next day. And the next day they had her on um, a bike, what's called a BiPAP machine, sort of like a, the, next, the next step before you get innovated. Mm-hmm. And it's basically pushing oxygen into the lungs. Mm-hmm. So as you're here having trouble breathing on your own. Visited with her for 10 hours that day. I was in an, I, I was there from about 10 in the morning until 1030 at night, just hanging out, uh, talking to her, talking to my, my mom has two sisters, younger sisters. So calling them on the phone, letting them know what's happening, talking to my sister and visiting with her and they're running tests. They don't know what's going on. Uh, at 1030 that night, as I was leaving the hospital, one of the doctors pulled me aside and said, we think your mom potentially has coronavirus. And here's what's going to happen. She's going to be moved into an isolation room. I need you. And my wife had been there all uh, off and on during the day with me as well. And we needed to sort of self-isolate, self-quarantine at home. And that we would be unable to come and visit mom the next day because she would be in isolation. Just sort of at that point, I'm kind of like in a little daze going, what, what, what does all this mean? You know, you don't, wasn't expecting this on Friday, that Friday night, that doctor on Friday night said that uh, a doctor would be contesting us from the hospital the next day to talk about what's happening on Saturday morning. Uh, Dr. Lee from Evergreen called to sort of set up a time later in the afternoon when I could conference call in my aunts and we could talk about what's going on with my mom. They tested her for coronavirus. On what day? They, I was told Friday night that they were testing her, whether they had taken the swab yet at that time yeah. or had um, were going to do it. I was just told that's what was happening. What was your and your family's reaction based on the little knowledge that we had of the coronavirus at that moment? Go more in depth on, on your your reaction to that. It was stunned, you know, because this had been in the news and this is, you know, people are dying elsewhere. And what's happening to people with this? We were just. There was a lot of silence in our conversations when I first told them what was happening. What do we do? What do we know? There's no, you know, there's no cure for this. It was shock. I just remember being just sort of numb when I found out. Okay, so you go back for the meeting with the doctor. Right, and this is all done over the phone, conference calls over the phone. Okay. Because uh, we weren't allowed to come to the hospital. At that time, they're shutting the hospital, you know, critical care unit. They're not letting you in. And she's talking about mom's condition and the tests they're running and mom being in isolation. And 
mom's not doing good. She's very non-responsive to anything. It was described to me or to us that imagine laying down and you have a 40 pound weight on your chest and you're trying to breathe. And that's what's happening to her. But you had just been, you had just been with her for 10, Mm -hmm. for 10 hours, what the previous day. So she had deteriorated rapidly from that point. I mean, she was cognizant and speaking and, and, and very much aware when you were with her. Yes. Okay. Saturday afternoon when we're having the conference call with the doctor and I can't thank the doctor enough. This Dr. Lee at Evergreen spent between Saturday and Sunday, I would say close to four hours on the phone with myself and our fam- my family hmm. talking to us about everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. The Saturday afternoon phone call was about an hour and a half and she brought up the test and the things and something that we needed to consider was the hospital transitioning mom over to compassionate care. Compassionate care at the hospital meant they stopped running tests, they stopped giving her antibiotics, they increased the morphine a little bit to lessen the difficulty and the pain of breathing. This is way before they got the results of the tests. They're kind of giving up. Yeah. Um, Why? There's nothing they can do. The, the fluid is, you know, is it the fluid that's building in her lungs? I the see. heaviness. It's, it's the script, like I said, that weight that's on there. And we still don't have the test results. Friday night, we were told we'd have the test results on Saturday night. Saturday night, we told we'd have the test results on Sunday. Sunday, they thought we'd have the test results Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon, it, it, we thought they'd have the test results Monday. We finally got a phone call on Tuesday morning, March 3rd, that mom had tested positive. By then, she had already she passed away Sunday night on the 1st. Wow. So it took that long to get the test results. So you had spent time with her on the Thursday and Friday. She had the test yes. on Friday night. You had the chat with the doctor on Saturday and Sunday, and she passed away on Sunday. Yes. Wow. So sorry. Yeah. So Saturday was a lot of discussions with the doctor, and they wanted to know what to do, and we had to let them know. So there was, after the long call with the doctor, uh, talks with the family, talks with my sister. We, I knew my mom had the D, my mom had a DNR, the Do Not Resuscitate order, and she didn't. We knew she did not want to be intubated again. On Saturday, one of the things the doctors talked about was in order to run some other tests and to do like a CAT scan or an MRI on her on her chest and her abdomen, they would have to give her a feeding tube to put proteins and things into her system. So there was a lot of struggling over, do we do that? Did, you know, how much does this go against what, what mom had wanted? Right. We slept on it uh, Sunday morning. We got on the phone again, talked. Mom's condition's still not doing anything. They can't do that. You know, another reason they can't do the tests is mom's isolated in the critical care unit. So the idea of trying to move somebody who potentially has coronavirus through the hospital down six floors to the imaging machines, what that would entail. And you were were able to be with her when she passed away? Did I read that right, Doug? Yes. When we made the decision to switch to compassionate care on Sunday evening, uh, I was told that I would be allowed to be with her. I would have to, if some extra precautions would have to be made. I went to the hospital at around 630 and they gave me gloves, disposable gown, 
and uh, sort of like a miner's helmet with a plastic shield. So it was it was positive air pressure around my face. And I was able to sit with her for about 20 minutes. Then they told me that I had to I had to leave the room because you weren't allowed to have extended exposure to somebody. And that I could come back to the room in an hour Mm. when they started the uh, process of switching to compassionate care. So I went down to the car to make a couple of phone calls and I got a call 20 minutes after I left the room to come back up. We're doing this now. So I go back up to the room, down up again and go and I sit with her. And what I did at that time was I was, uh, you're not supposed to have your phone in the room, but they sort of let me skirt that rule by putting my phone in a baggie and taking it into the, her in, in with me. And I called my aunts and they held the phone up to her ear so that they could say a goodbye to her. Was she aware? I played music. No, at this time, on Sunday, there was no response. If I, you know, mom, mom, and nothing. The only response that I got from my mom that I felt that she was aware of what was going on in her surroundings, I put uh, some music on on my phone and held it up to her ear. We listened to uh, some of her favorites, Barbara Streisand and the Beatles. Mm. And mom... You could actually see her in bed sort of do the little dancing that you do with your shoulders. Really? A little movement. Wow. Yeah. It was... Wow. That's how I knew she was there. But I also knew that there was nothing we could do. I read some text messages uh, from my sister, um, a, couple of, a, cu- a couple of cousins. I, I talked to her for a few minutes to sort of sidetrack me, one of the blessings about what was happening in this moment is I've been in AA for the past 10 years and I've learned from a lot of guys in my home group about how to be present in the moment and how to make an amends to somebody. And I had made an amends to my mom last year, a verbal amends in her final moments. I'm thinking, do I have anything unsaid for my mom? And I, I couldn't think of something, you know, there's always going to be those little regrets of maybe I didn't do this little thing or that little thing. Cause she had talked about like, uh, going out to the movies, me taking her out to the movies and she didn't get a chance to go out to the movies. I'm not going to be able to do that. But our last conversation was a good conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, we were chatting about just things and so back to, so when I'm with her and we're listening to music, this went on for about an hour and a half, reading the messages, um, talking to my aunts, all holding the phone up to her ear. And again, the nurse came in and said I would have to leave. I had way exceeded the CDC guidelines for being in the room with her. Of course you have. And I would need to step out. Yeah. As I step out of the room... I take off my little helmet and pressurized face shield and I look up and I notice the numbers on the monitors were dropping to like zeros and ones and twos for her respiration and her pulse. And I pointed at them and I said, look, they let me throw on a standard surgical mask for a moment and pop back in there and hold her hand because we knew this was the final minute seconds. 
throwing music on my phone real quick. Um, and I just, just holding her hand. Yeah. Yeah. And somewhere between, um, stand by me and here, there and everywhere. She passed away. Doug, you're a great son. You're a great son. You're an absolutely angelic son. And, uh, you should know that you probably already do know that, but I'm telling you that again, let's go back to the test. When did you ultimately, so she passes away on Sunday. When did you ultimately get the, the readings of the test? March 3rd, 6.30 in the morning, the doctor called me to tell me my mom had tested positive. Which day was March 3rd? Uh, that was a Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday, March 3rd at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, the doctor from Evergreen Hospital called me to tell me that mom had tested positive. So you were around her and exposed to her greatly during her symptomatic times. Uh, have you been tested? Have your, has your family and your wife been tested? Tell us about that. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in life care that that week, a few hours, and then a number of hours at the hospital, uh, unprotected. I figured it out to us, probably about 16 hours, unprotected with mom, touching her hands with my hands, touching my face. Friday night, uh, the 28th of February, we were, my wife and I, self-quarantined. Yeah. And we never developed symptoms in those two weeks, thankfully. We uh, requested to be tested because of our extended amount of exposure and what we were hearing in the news about what was happening at Life Care. And we were told that unless we became symptomatic, they would not test us. Okay. Uh, there just there wasn't enough tests to go around. We received a phone call on Wednesday, March 4th, from the Department of Health to ask them some questions about our contact, how much contact did we have, And because now they had known that mom did test positive and we were told that from 14 days from our last contact with her, we had to quarantine for the first few days. We were just doing it because we knew that's what we should do. Now we were being told that's what we had to do. So luckily it was just my wife and I that were here. Our daughter had been staying at her boyfriend's the week previously. So she did not have to self quarantine in with us but she was also then not able to come home and be with us. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. Thankfully, we have a very good neighborhood group. Our little neighborhood actually has its own little Facebook page. And when people heard that, you know, my mom had passed, that we were in quarantine, we had neighbors dropping off things at the front door. Uh, My next door neighbor does Girl Scouts. I I got a nice little load of Girl Scout cookies. Another friend came by and left some at our doorstep. Uh, he had gone to Costco and gotten us uh, uh, a chicken and a couple of frozen meals and left them at our door. But you can't talk. I mean, we're talking to people through a window at our house. They're standing in the front yard and we're inside and in, in the bedroom talking to them. Any best guesses on how the coronavirus was brought into that facility? And she was, she was, I think you mentioned to me she was the third the third casualty of, of the coronavirus, is that right? That's what we thought at the time, because they had, there were no, in the news reports at the time, there had only been two other people previously in the states who had passed. Going back now and uh, hearing from some reporters on uh, timelines, now that they've gone and back-tested some people who had passed away, we think mom was approximately the seventh. I don't, we're not out 100% sure on that. Some people had died that earlier that week that they went and back-tested. Thinking my mom is a statistic for this 
thing that is just engulfing the country and the planet, yeah. you know? Right. She had lost some friends. Did Were some of those that were lost to the coronavirus from that Kirkland facility her friends, Barbara's friends? I don't know. That's one of the things we had talked about with mom. She hadn't, she'd been in the nursing home for about nine months. Okay. She had her couple of roommates, but right. they were both nonverbal. Right. So in my visits with mom, she hadn't truly connected with any one person. At least she didn't say to me, oh, I was talking to this gal, Lisa, and she and I were having these good conversations. She was still trying to get into the, the flow of things there. What were now a couple of weeks have gone by since uh, your mom's passing and so much has changed as you watch and the rest of the world watches how this virus has, as you say, engulfed the planet. Any thoughts, any words of wisdom, anything that you'd like to share with our audience as someone who was so painfully close to the, the virus, the disease, the death? The thing that, that's gotten me and, you know, and connected me to this more than anything else is you get these people who say, it can't happen to me. I'm young. Like I heard you and Scott talking about it. You know, can't happen to me. You know what? It, you're right. It, maybe it can't happen to you, but it happened, can happen to your mom. It can happen to your friend's mom. Yeah. You don't know who has it. You can have it and give it to somebody without knowing it. You can grab the door handle of something and somebody comes right behind you and they grab that door handle. And then you go and you touch your face and then you go and you stop by your grandma's house or your mom's house and say, hi, people keep saying, Oh, it's the flu. It's just the flu. You know what? My mom has survived the flu. She didn't survive this. Well, Doug, you are amazing. And and let me say that your mom, Barbara was very, very lucky in one way to have you, to have you there with her those last few days. Don't ever forget that. Your company meant the world to her. The shaking of the shoulders confirmed that, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I won't forget that. You're so kind. You're so courageous to share with our listeners your mom's story. Uh, I hope that her her memory is a blessing. I hope that uh, she rests in peace, and I hope that you and your family can go on. And uh, I wish you all nothing but my love and my best. Thank you very much, Mitch. I appreciate it. My best to you and your family as well. We obviously thank Doug for sharing his family's heartbreaking story with us. Important that we all understand that the choices that we make over the next few weeks will directly impact much more than ourselves during this really, really scary time. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline for the very first time is Zeke's Pizza President Dan Black. How does that sound to you, Dan? That must mean I'm important. <laughs> I don't know if you're important, but you are on the Zeke's Pizza. <laughs> Many have been on the Zeke's Pizza hotline before you. Obviously a terrible and uncertain time, and we're all trying to get through this together. What can you tell us about Zeke's Pizza? How are you guys doing? And and give us some ideas. Like you say, I mean, it's um, undoubtedly a tough time for the restaurant industry. I mean, it's harrowing. Zeke's is lucky in that we're going to be more resilient than most simply because we have a pretty significant delivery business. You know, we're focused on mainly our residential delivery simply because everybody's at home. 
like I say, our kind of high ground in this is uh, is delivery. And there's three ways, three very easy ways to have Zeke's Pizza at your door, right? Yep. You know, when I order, I use the app. It's the fastest and the easiest. Uh, you know, of course, that's what most people like to do nowadays, too. But you can do it online as well. If you want to call, the people in our call center are extremely friendly and they're extremely good at what they do so pretty much anybody in greater seattle area or the east side and parts of Tacoma can call 206-285-TO-GO which is 206-285-8646 and it's a great alternative because you and i were talking about it before we started to record there is no evidence that the virus is transmitted through food in fact if a droplet were to fall on a cooked pizza for that matter research says that the the virus would die so this is a really good alternative. Pizza, home. We've got our kids home. How about kind of social distancing? How, how have you guys incorporated that into your delivery methods, Dan? Everything you're saying about food is true. There's Food's very safe. Zeke's is serious about health and safety all the time, even when it's not like this. So a lot of the a lot of stuff that's recommended and that people are doing, we do anyway. But the way we've worked social distancing in specifically to delivery is... You can pay for everything, including tip, whether it's on the phone, online, or the app. And that's that's kind of always been the case. We've we've always done that. But the way we've worked it now, too, is, is you can leave a note no matter how you order, whether it's on the phone, whether it's on the mobile app or online, with a lo- drop-off location. And so you basically don't have to interact with the driver at all. That's the kind of modification we've made since this came about, which it's it's just really easy, basically, to do a completely interaction-free transaction as long as you just leave notes as to where you want your stuff left. Dan Black, president of Zeke's Pizza. Download the Zeke's Pizza app and use it during these troubled times. We love Zeke's Pizza. It's homegrown in the Northwest, and they're a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered. Unfiltered. Other Stuff segment 84, episode 84 of Mitch Unfiltered. I love You want to lead off? You like this segment? Yeah. You want to lead it. off or you want me to go or what do you want to do? I'd want like to, to tell a story. What do you want to do? Well, we do. I do want to get to the story people asked for, but the uncle and the fishing. Yeah, I, I, a, I'm surprised yeah. I don't know that story. You pr- well, maybe you do. Maybe when you start to hear. Well, no, you would know if you if yeah, you've heard that story okay. before. Yeah. So when I came in here, I said, what do you think about Ellen? I was just kind of curious. I mean, you're not friends with Ellen DeGeneres, but what do you think about I'm a about fan Ellen? of Ellen DeGeneres. Of her show? I, I'm a fan of her show i think they do a very good job on her show my wife is a huge fan i would call myself a fan if it's on and it's the middle of the day and i got nothing to do i will watch the ellen show i like the ellen show i like her i like her story she's overcome a lot i think she's very funny i think she's very bright talented yes, uh, yeah oh yeah okay completely uh, yes i'm an ellen DeGeneres fan i wouldn't say i'm a rabid fan like my wife is kind of a rabid fan i'm a fan she has a lot of rabid fans. She, uh, I mean, of course she does. She's got a lot of viewers. Yeah. yeah. When she snapped something at the Academy Awards, that picture. Oh, that selfie. With all yeah. this, it went crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're going to tell me that I shouldn't be a fan anymore. No, you can be a fan all you want, but uh, there's been a going long on? Go, uh, uh, an ongoing rumor about her that she may not be the nicest person oh. when the camera's off. Oh. And uh, you have stories. Well, one of our old interns on the, the T-Man show. Yeah left us to go work for Ellen. She was there for oh, like hold on a second. two or three years. Let me go back over that. <laughs> yeah. One of the interns on the T-Man show in Seattle. Yes. 
went to become a paid employee of the Ellen DeGeneres show in Los Angeles. Not talented enough to get paid by us. <laughs> so she had to slum it in LA. something a little bit tangled about that. But okay, I got you. I Go actually ahead. texted her. I don't know oh. if she'll have, hear from me these okay. days, but okay. I wanted to see if she had, but she would tell stories about Ellen, not necessarily being the nicest person in the world. And when she left, it was kind of ugly. And Ellen would just take her ideas and use them for herself. And did just a lot of stories about this. So this comedian, uh, Kevin J. Porter, I think, or Kevin T. Porter. Yeah. I remember Kevin Porter, the basketball player at... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, he was a high school basketball star here, went to USC for a year, and I think, he, I think he's in Cleveland. But go ahead. That's a different Kevin Porter. Different, different one. Yeah. Kevin Porter Jr. So he reached out to Twitter and said, for everyone who sends me a story about Ellen being not so nice, I'll donate $2 oh, to the LA Food Bank. What is he trying to do? I don't, I don't know why he wanted to do it. He obviously has an ax to grind with Ellen. Well, yeah, I think he does, but turns out, a lot of people do because he got a lot of stories. Is it possible people. some of these stories are being made up? It is possible. And there was a couple that said she was fine. I talked to her and she, you know, I worked with her and she was nice to me. So he's encouraging the world who loves Ellen DeGeneres to bash her in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. I think it's more that he's just. He's outing her. I, I think it's more that. I think it's. Why is he doing that? Well, she's notoriously one of the meanest people alive, he says. And he said, to respond to this with the most insane stories you've ever heard about Ellen, I'll match everyone for $2 to the L.A. Food Bank. And how many has he gotten? Thousands? Yes. They've, they've come pouring in, and some of them are pretty... Like, for instance... His are these funny, or are these like, ooh? I, I don't know if you think it's funny, but when you watch her show and then think about that same person doing this, it's, I can't wrap my head around it, because I don't know her. Yeah. But... Karen Kilgariff was her head writer for five years until the writer's strike. She wouldn't cross the picket line, and when she was fired, her and Ellen never spoke again. Her head writer for five years just cut her off because she wouldn't cross the picket line. Just cut her off. Mm. Bye. Head writer, five years. My friend wrote for the Ellen Show for two years and told me Ellen didn't greet her once. Not, not once. In fact, upon employment, staff were told they weren't allowed to talk to her. You should have employed that when you were in KJR. That's a good rule. <laughs> yeah, you look at you. Why are you bagging on her for that? <laughs> You're grabbing. She's ideas. innovative, for God's sakes. I worked at some restaurant, served her and Portia at brunch. She wrote a letter to the owner and complained about my chipped nail polish. Not that it was on her plate, but just that it was on my hand. I had worked till closing the night before and didn't have time to get my nails done. Almost got me fired. Whew, sounds like a delight to work for, Ellen. God. She has a sensitive nose. Oh. This is a, this is a different guy. Okay. Everyone must chew gum from a bowl outside her office before talking to her. And if she thinks you smell that day, you have to go home and shower. Wait, what? <laughs> We've all been around smelly employees. You don't get to do that. Uh. A new staff member says every day she picks someone different to really hate. It's not your fault. Just suck it up for the day and she'll be mean to someone else the next day. They didn't believe it, but it ended up being entirely true, this person says. So there's a lot of stories out there. Oh, My friend waited on her, and she threw a plate of salmon in his face because it wasn't what she ordered. Come on. These are made up. <laughs> these are made up. I Ellen don't know. DeGeneres never threw a piece of salmon at a waiter. I don't believe it. Do you think she's doing the dance and the whole dunk tanks at home and the fun, happy go love it? I don't know. I, 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 I cringe <sighs> at some of this. I cringe at some of this because we don't know what stories are true and which stories are not true. I don't know. I mean, she did bully Mariah Carey into admitting she was pregnant on the show one time. I don't did know if she? you saw that. No, yeah, I didn't see that one. So this is fascinating. This is okay. this huge thread. Okay. Ellen DeGeneres is not as nice as she seems on the show. She, she's not as friendly, not as perky as she seems on the show. Yeah, and she, okay. I mean, maybe even a little nasty. Like, we've heard about Letterman. He was standoffish. His ex-employees didn't come back and go, have, go hang out with him. Yeah. 
But he wasn't nasty, at least from what we hear. Like, did this. you see Ben Roethlisberger? Can we get off of the Ellen? Are you finished with Ellen? Or are you still going after Ellen? Did she ever do anything to you, by the way? I just applied for a job her, to be a writer <laughs> on her show. You're very much available. <laughs> yes, I am. Did you see Ben Roethlisberger's video on Twitter and social media? Oh, I don't want to give my true thoughts to this. I'm going to sound like a total <laughs> asshole. Uh, it's a little bit late for that. <laughs> I mean, in what what a. Wh- in what world yes. does that guy yes. who looks like that get that wife? Now, I'm in between either women are the greatest people on the planet or the opposite. Either they can just look at what's inside. And believe me, I benefit from that. I'm happy my wife looks at what's inside. <laughs> All right. With the, with the dad bod. I'm, I'm no yeah. prize. Yeah. So women are able to just forget how people look. God bless them. She loves them. She loves that Ben Roethlisberger. Could he get it? I mean, or it's the other way, and what, she just what, loves the money what, and what, what, I, don't <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. You tell me what it is. Does he think that this is a good look? I mean, what's going through his mind? Forget what's going through her mind. What's going through his mind? He looks like one he of He just f- doesn't care? Or this is him, and he wants to be himself? I mean, what is it exactly? Does he have any kind of rhyme or reason to looking that way, to not... Cutting his hair, cutting his beard. He looks like one of the feuding hillbillies from Bugs Bunny. Do you remember those two that would always fight? I mean, his beard is like down to his belt oh. buckle. It's awful. And he looks older. I, I, I don't know. I don't have any answers as to why he likes that Well, look. I don't think he's going to a... Uh I don't think he's going to a beauty parlor anytime soon. I'm assuming they're all closed, that you can't, you can't go get your hair cut anymore. Well, can you? Well, you can buy clippers and you can do it yourself. trim your beard. Yeah. Yes, you can have your wife do it or one of the kids. The kids would probably have loads of fun doing that. Yeah. I just could not believe that the, he literally looks like he went to sleep for the last <laughs> year, like Rip Van Winkle. Right, they pulled him out of a cave and he was yeah, asleep. Yeah, he does. And he got up and he went, oh. He look, he, no, he actually looks like Tom Hanks' character. In that movie where he's on the island, Castaway or whatever it's called. Wilson. Yeah. yeah. He looks like him at his worst. Yeah, on, on that's Tom, true. Whenever Tom Hanks' worst day, at the very end before he got rescued off of the island, and then he ran back to Helen Hunt, whom I, whom I love, by the way. Yeah. That that last day, the way Tom Hanks' character, that's the way Ben Roethlisberger looks. Speaking and of he's that. Not, and he's not deserted on an island that I can tell. No, I don't. I, I no. think I think got there's a beautiful family. I think beautiful there's family. desserts in his life, but he's not deserted <laughs> on an island from how he looked. By the way, did anyone else think it was weird that Tom Hanks? I tweeted this out that Tom Hanks married someone with the last name Wilson. Yeah, but then of course somebody on Twitter. Oh, it's a little late for that one. <laughs> All right, you can't say anything without it already have been said on Twitter. You know. Anyway, yeah. All right, Ben Roethlisberger, Tom Brady's a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. Yep. Everybody's running to put money on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to win the NFC, win the NFC South, win the NFC, go to the Super Bowl, maybe win the Super Bowl. Everybody likes Tom Brady in, in, in Tampa, so we'll have to see how that goes. The Seahawks do not play the Buccaneers, by the way. Antonio Brown begging to come along. I don't know if you've seen Antonio that. Antonio Brown, number 84. <laughs> right, Episode yeah. 84, episode Antonio Brown. Uh, anything else before we name the show? Did you want me w- – w- I was supposed to tell a story. Is that right? Yes, the story about – Yeah. So – your uncle in a fishing trip is all the information that I have. Somebody wants to hear this. It's an old story. It's a true story. It's a story that I told on. I used to do a radio show back in the day. Okay. Oh, on, yeah. The, the a, plumber guy told me that was at my house. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You could ask him. Maybe he's heard the story. I had an uncle. I had I, my father had four brothers. My, my, my father was one of five boys. Wow. Three, he was the youngest of five boys. Okay. And three of the five, not including my father, were really big, round guys. I mean. Really? gargantuan guys (laughs) okay big 
like 400 pounds big. Because your dad was like tall and fit, right? He yeah, wasn't my, like- my dad in his day, he got a little chubby at the end. Okay. My dad in his day was thin and athletic. Right. And one of the other brothers was kind of thin. And the other three were just gigantic. <laughs> okay. I mean, just gigantic. And the, the brother that we're talking about, the uncle that we're talking about, Uncle Mike, okay. was one of the big ones. Okay? And Uncle Mike... Uh, moved down to Florida when I was a kid. He was the first to come down to Florida. He come down to Florida for an extended winter time. Like all the uncles, the uncles would come down to Florida. He come down for, and then they established residency in Florida. And my uncle Mike came down to Florida. They were from Pennsylvania. Okay, and he used to get a kick out of when I was a kid. I was probably eight, nine, ten, eleven years old. He got a kick out of fishing. We had a dock in the backyard on the intercoastal, and he got a kick out of fishing. Okay, and he would come over, hey Mitch, and get his nephew, just me, not my brothers. Yeah, and we'd sit on the dock and we'd fish. Okay. And but are you at this point in your life? Do you like fishing? No, because no. you don't strike me as like an outdoorsy no. fisher. Okay. No, I'm not. I'm <laughs> everything right. that you think I am. Okay, gotcha. And he would come over and sit on the dock, and the two of us would fish. This big, big behemoth. Sometimes it was very special to me because sometimes I could skip school. My parents would let me skip school for the. It would be one time per winter or per time that he would come. Yeah. One time a year he would come over. We'd set two chairs up on the dock and we'd fish. Okay. And we'd fish off the dock and we'd catch virtually nothing. All right. But you enjoyed the time together and the conversation. Yeah, and he'd say, shh, you're going to scare the fish. <laughs> yeah, you know, we could right. really talk. <laughs> and every once in a while, we pull out, like, do you ever seen a blowfish? Yeah. A fish that when he gets scared, blew, kind of blows yeah, up yeah. with poison in his. But you don't we, eat them or anything, right? Oh, no, no. We didn't. We, first of all, we wouldn't even know how to eat it. We weren't catching right, fish that we were trying it to eat. Cutting we, it, were yeah, throwing, yeah. we were throwing it back. Okay. And, and, and the truth is we never caught anything. Okay. We put shrimp, <laughs> we put shrimp oh, on there on the end of our, our, our little uh, hooks yeah. and we put them in. And we'd sit there for hours. And I remember thinking as a kid, nine, <laughs> ten, I, I would think as a kid, I, I would anticipate this day. I thought it was going to be the greatest day. And then about an hour after we'd start, I was like, I'd rather be in school. This is not funny. <laughs> really? you know, my uncle's not letting me talk. I mean, <laughs> whatever. But then funny, something would happen that we'd finish, not catch anything or a blowfish. And then for the next year, I would, I couldn't wait for the time that he's going to come over. We're going to fish off the dock. Well, while we're fishing, when I'm nine and 10 and 11, he would say, you know, Near where I live down here, where my apartment is, they have what they call a drift fishing boat. Okay. Where people go out on this big boat, commercial boat, okay. and they go drift fishing. And he'd say, Mitchie, one of these years, this would happen at eight, at nine, at ten, he'd say, one of these years, I'm not coming over to the dock. Yeah. You're coming over to the condo, and we're going over, and we're going drift fishing. Yeah. And we literally, Scott, talked about this for years. Okay. Years and years we talked about it. And I'd say, Uncle Mike, is this the year? And he'd say, no, no, we'll fish off the dock. Yeah, yeah. Uncle Mike, is this the year? No, no, we'll fish off the dock. And then, like, when I was 12, he calls me and he says, Mitchie, this is the year. Oh, wow. Did you think it would ever happen? Yeah, I oh, thought it would did? happen. Okay. I just didn't know when. Yeah, yeah. And I think I was 12 years old. He said, Mitch, we are going we're going to the big time now. No more off the dock. <laughs> right. You and me. And he wasn't a fisherman either. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. I didn't know what the hell. I don't was even doing. know what drift fishing is. Okay, so drift fishing is you get on a boat in Singer Island, Florida, yeah. with about seventy-five other people crammed into oh, a kind of smallish boat, yeah. and you go out into the ocean, not the intercoastal. Okay. And they, they, I think they send an anchor down, whatever, and they turn off the the motor, and you drift. 
and you fish oh. and you drift for four hours. Oh, this is an expedition. This is a big, this is a big, big thing. I had been waiting for this for years and years. Yeah. So I go over there. I'm like, you're kidding. I miss school for this. I go over there. We get on the boat. He's bought tickets. We got our, our rods and we're ready to go. Yeah, yeah. And we get on with all of these other people, some kids, whatever, but just a huge amount of people. Like, as I said, 50, 60 people on a smallish boat. Okay. Kind of packed in like sardines. Yeah. Well, <laughs> first of all before you keep going <laughs> what sort of fish are you hoping to catch like does the guide say there's salmon yeah there's... Uh, no i don't know about salmon but yeah this is the big time i okay. don't remember it's years okay. ago. but big time fish, like fish you keep yeah yeah and then you you eat right 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 this was something i didn't know about okay right <laughs> right why would you you only grew up in south florida I mean... so we're going out there and what i failed to tell my uncle mike and i have failed to tell you yeah. is i have a uh a seasickness problem. Oh God! And those boats can do it to you. I mean, just yeah. If you're if you get seasick, and you're we are going out. out we oh. are going out. Everybody's excited. No one started fishing yet. We're going out to the spot. And I said to my uncle Mike, Uncle Mike, I'm not feeling so good. Yeah. And he says, What do you mean you're not feeling so good? I said, I'm getting a little nauseous. Yeah. And as we went out, and this was going to be three or four hours. Yeah, then you got to drive out to it and drive back. I right. mean, it could we be haven't more even time. started drifting yet. Oh. We're moving. Okay, you understand the difference between moving and drifting? Sure. Yeah. I'm sick while we're moving in a straight line. No sure. way. Yeah. I'm sick. Oh my god. I don't know what to do. I'm 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 ready to throw up. Now, and he tells me now. There's if you could picture this on the boat on the front of the boat where all the people are lined around the outside. There's two fairly big benches okay that are kind of facing out on either direction okay does that make sense yeah, off yeah. The, the side of the boat and he says to me mitch why don't you lay down on that bench if you're not feeling well while we're going out to the spot yeah and i said okay uncle mike and i'm i'm turning pale i'm not feeling the good. worst if you've ever had it it's awful it's, and 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 i'm thinking god we got three hours yeah i got three hours. they're not bringing me in no way. I'm stuck. Now, what if somebody would have come to you at 10 and said, Mitch, are you seasick? Did you know you were seasick? Yeah, I knew I, I knew. I knew I had the tendency, but I forgot. I threw it out the window because okay. I thought this was something special. Okay. So I laid down on, I laid down on the, the bench. On the way out. On the way out. Not even there yet. God. I was so freaking sick. The worst. It was the worst. Yeah. And I, I, I sense we stop. We start to drift. And people are like, hey! Party time. And they're, hey, cast that one. Way to go, Frankie. Pull that one in. And I'm like, oh, I can't even look up. I'm so freaking sick. If you see water. I can't even look up. So I'm saying to myself, what am I going to do? How am I going to make this three hours go faster? So finally, I get enough courage and enough energy to look up and to see my my uncle across the way. He's across the way. Mm -hmm. And I look up. And the first thing I see is my uncle lying across the other, <laughs> lying across the other bench. Oh my God, that's awesome. I look at him. <laughs> uncle Mike, he says, don't bother me. <laughs> now this, can you picture oh this enormous 400 pound yeah. guy yeah. on his side on a little bench oh. that's long and I said, Uncle Mike, you know, they don't bother me. Don't bother oh me. I'm God. so freaking sick. <laughs> The two of oh, us, God. there's 75 people on board. The two of us are laid out on a bench, 
Moral, already long story, already too long of a story short. Yeah. Neither one of us ever cast a line <laughs> into the water. You had to just lay there. there. We laid there for three hours, oh the two of us. God. 73 other people, they're pulling in fish. Right, right. They're having a good old Party time. time. And the two Levies, Mike and Mitch, one's on one <laughs> bed. <laughs> Poor guy, trying to do something nice for his nephew. <laughs> Jesus, money well spent. Huh? So, Nary a line went in the water for either Oh my of you. God. Oh my and God. And so finally, funny. I don't know how we lived to, I don't know how we got to the end. Yeah. But then we started fe- feeling them leaving and put everybody, oh, everybody up, we're leaving. Yeah. And then we had, and we got, my mom is waiting for us at the dock. Yeah, yeah. How was it? <laughs> Your uncle's trying to get a refund at the ticket window. My my uncle's got like throw up coming out of his side of his mouth. I'm sick of this. We couldn't get on to land fast enough. We went out after talking about it for five years. Oh my God. We went out for three and a half hours and neither one of us even put a line in the water. (laughs) We were both sick on the benches for three hours. You're definitely related, aren't you? I mean, definitely (laughs) blood relations. Two Levy boys over there. (laughs) That dock, you were longing for that dock. Where, I mean, I remember to this moment the feeling when my foot got off that boat. Yeah. And I swore to myself, by the way, that I would never go on another boat. And the PS to that story is we owned a boat. My family owned a boat. I'd go on it. I was okay. Like a ski boat? Or? No, it was a little bit, a little bit bigger than that, but not, okay. you know, kind of a. And, uh, and years later, years later, when I was in college, my, my family wanted to go on a cruise. And I was like, I'm not going on a cruise. I am not going on a cruise. I'll never go on a cruise. I went on this cruise, but I had the patch. I had the The Dramamine. I was was so heavily medicated. I don't even know that I knew that I was on a cruise. And everybody in my family got sick except for me. (laughs) I was okay on a cruise. Most of them. Wow. Yeah, we got. Those things are stable. And I I have never been on a cruise since. I'm done. I'm done with big boats. I'm done with fishing boats. I'm done with cruises. Never, ever again. Well, you live in Seattle. Yeah. I get on speed, but we go on boats in Seattle. Okay, so you can do like a speed boat. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, okay. I didn't know how sensitive I'm I'm done with the whole cruiser, bigger boat. I'm I'm done. I I am so done. I don't... Anyway, that's the story. Me and my Uncle Mike. Uncle Mike, is he still alive or is no, he not with us? Long gone. Uh, long gone. I don't. I don't have that seasickness. I think I grew up on boats and you know this area. And we went. We were in Maui. Just this isn't as funny as your story, but I didn't realize how sick people got from it. Oh, we were on. It was a like a catamaran to go out and see yeah. turtles. It was yeah. an hour yeah. there, an hour back. There's people with like Minnesota Golden Gopher shirts on, hanging over the side of the boat, just oh. losing it. Like people. Oh. Yeah, if you have neither it, it's awful. one of us could lift our heads for three hours. <laughs> oh, I awful. never saw him, and and, and oh, I, part of the story that I may have butchered because it's been so many years ago. It's th- when I was thirteen. I remember that it got choppy on the way in, and people went inside into the cabin. A lot of the seventy-five yeah. people because it got choppy and water was flying. We couldn't get up, and you didn't so the care. Two of, the two of us, <laughs> water's coming over the boat onto us. The two of us are getting soaked, and neither one of us could get up off of our <laughs> off of our bench. We never got up off the bench. We were like on oh, two little God. stretchers the entire time. Poor Mike. He should have got a Uncle refund, Mike. Uncle Mike. Movie mogul Max, his, na- his middle name is Michael. Oh, nice. After that uncle. Nice. Trying to do something nice for his little <laughs> nephew. <and laughs> renders you both useless right, on a boat. It. I love what it. What are you doing? Shannon Sharp or Randy Moss? I'm going to go episode Randy Moss. Big Why? fan. I think he's arguably the greatest receiver of all time. Arguably. No. Arguably. No. Jerry Rice? I know Jerry's got the numbers, but if you in put, fact, put I, those I, two in their prime and you have to start one. I'm going to you tell start? you why you're making a mistake, but we're going to go with your decision why you're making a mistake. <laughs> okay. 
It, well, I'll give you the numbers. The numbers Randy Moss has. So Randy Moss has 982 catches, 15,000 yards, 156 touchdowns. Shannon Sharp, 815 receptions, 10,000 yards, 62 touchdowns. So his numbers are, are much better than Shannon Sharp. Yeah. But here's the problem. He's a wide receiver, and Shannon Sharp is a tight end. And I would bet you, if you lined up 100 NFL experts and you said, who's closer to the top of his position historically, Shannon Sharp or Randy Moss, I'll bet you they'd say Shannon Sharp. I think Shannon Sharp is thought of by just about everybody as one of the top one or two tight ends with Tony Gonzalez. And Gates, maybe. Antonio Gates. Nah, I think he's thought of much higher than Gates. Hmm, okay. I think he's thought of as one of the top one, two, or three tight ends in the history of football. I don't think Randy Moss, I think Randy Moss would be considered a top seven wide receiver really? in the history. I, I think... Numbers Ooh. aside, I just think Shannon Sharp is higher amongst the all-time tight ends than Randy Moss is about the white. But you can go wrong with either one. I remember so Randy Moss dominating his position. He did. So I, did Shannon Sharp. And I remember when Randy Moss went to the Raiders, and they're like, well, Randy Moss is done. He sucks. He should retire. Next year, he went to the Patriots and had a guy who could actually throw. Yeah. I, I love good. that about him. I don't know. I, I, like, I think I love Randy, Randy Moss. Randy Moss, six Pro Bowls, four first-team All-Pros. Yeah. Uh, Shannon Sharp, eight Pro Bowls. Four first-team All-Pros, three Super Bowl rings. Yeah. Shannon Sharp, three Super Bowl rings. Randy Moss, I don't believe, has won. I don't think he won it with the Patriots. He Is was that on that year? undefeated he team. He might have been the team that the Giants, that the Giants upset. Yeah. Anyway. All right. I told you I was going to let the fact that I think he's a colossal blowhard get in the way okay. of this. Skip Bayless. <laughs> Episode Randy Moss is in the books.